Hey, 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 and welcome to the show, folks. Man, what a show. I had my relative, my wife's cousin, Adam Bates, on today. He's done a lot of humanitarian work, helping refugees in Greece. Um, He started a nonprofit um, that helps strengthen community cohesion, providing people a platform to help each other achieve goals and ambitions. He's done some stuff since COVID with PPE. Yeah, he's done quite a bit. Um, he's a really, really amazing guy. I really had a good time talking with him. And we talk a lot about, you know, just the state of the world and how we're kind of shifting into this this new era, as it, uh, as it seems. I, I definitely feel the weight of it. And um, very interesting conversation. Um, but um, yeah, folks, we had a little bit of connection issues. So I'm going to go in and edit some of it. So some of it might, you know, jump around, but uh, it's going to be good. It'll be all right. Don't worry. Um, I hope you guys get a lot from this. So here we go. So, Adam, um, oh, now I lost my notes. <laughs> oh man, what a mess. Okay, so um, you're you're currently uh, living in South South Mexico, right? That's more toward and on the east or the west, right? West, it, it's west. Is that correct? Like on the Gulf? I'm on the east. I'm east. on the Caribbean coast, so east. I'm just a, yes, that's right. an that's hour right. north of Belize. So as I look out this uh, towards the sea, I'm looking out towards Cuba. Oh wow, wow! How's how's the weather? Down I can't in see. Mexico Cuba, right obviously, now? it's very far away. But it's that general direction. The weather is so hot um, for me, anyway, because I'm from the center of England, and in England right now it's something like six degrees. That's mm-hmm. what I'm used to: cold and wet. But over here, it does get wet sometimes. We had some amazing storms, and I love mm-hmm. storms. I'm a big storm kind of. Yeah. You know, I get so excited. Yeah. Is but, it like lightning uh, storms? Yeah, it's heavy rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of rain, a lot of lightning, a lot of thunder. Mm. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to one of, one of my other careers was going to be as a storm chaser. I don't know how I was going to make that a career, but I was like, yeah. I, I, I see these videos of the US where you get these people chasing tornadoes and things, which aren't so nice because obviously they wreak a lot of damage. But um, you know, I used to think that adrenaline rush. Can you still hear me? I can. Sounds like okay. you're coming and going there. Yeah, sorry. My, I accidentally disconnected the mic. Was I-, I, I heard everything you said. It was just I accidentally disconnected the mic. Um, I got a um, fat fingers. I was touching the screen. Yeah, that's um, – yeah, I've, I've, um, I've been down to Belize before. I've been um, Cozumel, but a lot of the places I've been down in Mexico are more of like the touristy – like places so you're not really like in Mexico Mexico if that makes sense like I I understand that there's a big difference between like the Americanized uh holiday places in Mexico and then actual Mexico if that makes any sense yeah the Cozumel is not that far away it's probably about three and a half hours up the coast Mm -hmm. and there are lots of places down this coast like Cancun and Mm -hmm. uh Tulum those kinds of places 
are really touristy in there. Well, um, I kind of, I, I guess I'll just go ahead and uh, jump into it. Um, I wanted, uh, I really wanted to have you on um, because I've been very fascinated. Camilla and Olivia uh, have told me a lot about you um, um, grow, uh, as I've been friends with them and stuff like that. And now married to Camilla, they've told me quite a bit about you. And uh, the most that I've really grasped was that you did um, uh, like sports commentating over BB for BBC and um, a lot of humanitarian work. And we worked with refugees in Greece. I want to say it was Greece. And I'd like to just yeah. kind of hear your story and kind of hear like how that all took place and like how you went from um, sports commentating. Like, was that something you always wanted to do and just how that all worked itself out? We'll start with the sports commentating. Yeah, so the sports commentating. Yeah, that literally was what I always wanted to do. And, you know, when you're a kid and the teacher asks the kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the kid's like an astronaut or mm-hmm. a footballer or whatever it is. For me, it was always football commentator, a bit mm-hmm. different. I mean, I, I knew I was hopeless at playing sport. So the next best thing is to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I was listening to the radio growing up and I was listening to commentator Graham Richards. He was just, he exuded so much passion and he was getting paid to yell about something yeah. he loved. And I thought <laughs> there cannot be a better thing because when I go, to, I couldn't go and watch it because they were too expensive to go to every week. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go to the occasional one, but you couldn't afford to go every week. Whereas he was being paid to be there and shout about it. And I thought, I can do that. I'd love to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I knew from when I was about six or seven, I wanted to be a sports commentator. So having that focus was really handy. Um, and it meant that by the time I was 14, my local BBC radio station did a competition which was called Amateur Sports Reporter of the Year. Uh, and you had to send in something like a 90-second clip of yourself. Actually, I recorded it on cassette. And I was recording a Champions League final. So that's the biggest match in European football. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I sent that off and they said that I'd been shortlisted. I was one of the top four. So the top four then had their demo tapes played out on the radio and the listeners had to ring in or um, text in and say who they wanted to win the competition. And this was over a, about a three or four week period. And... I had an advantage because I was so young. Um, I was at school. And so I was able to stand up in assembly at school at the start of the day and tell cumulatively about a thousand people, a thousand kids to go on the internet um, in their IT classes, go to this website and vote for me, which enough of them did for me to win the competition. Oh, wow. And my sister helped me out a lot with that as well. So I won this competition and the prize was to report on my favourite football team, Derby County, on the radio. And so it was about seven months later I did that and then they knew who I was and I was a persistent kid who mm-hmm. would just go, can I have some work experience now? And they're like, uh, mm, don't know. Yeah, can I come? I'll just come and watch. And like, oh, okay, right. So then they let me have some work experience and then it was a case of, oh, uh, so-and-so's ill. Could you answer the phones on a Saturday afternoon for us? And so then I'd be taking phone calls about people's lost budgies and parrots and things and <laughs> feeding it through to the person who was on it. Yeah. 
Um, and then it, one day it was, so-and-so is ill, he can't go and report on this non-league football match or soccer, as you know. it. Mm-hmm. Um, would you want to go to Buxton, which is a town about an hour away? But I said, of course, I jumped at the chance. So I went to Buxton and reported on Buxton 2, Prescott Cables 2. That was my first ever proper report on BBC Local Radio. And it went really well. And then I started being asked to do more and more. And then I got started to, uh, I was asked to commentate as opposed to report. So actually doing the play-by-play, I think you call it over there, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. on the radio for one of the football teams they covered, Burton Albion, my hometown club. So I absolutely loved that. And yeah, it just grew from there. I went and studied broadcast journalism at Leeds University and graduated from there with the first and then after that I went freelance moved down to London to the big smoke and started uh, freelancing for lots of different clients and um, ended up commentating and reporting on uh, football from around the world and I ended up being able to travel around the world going to tennis tournaments which was my other big love um, so lucky like I, th- I think the, some of the places I went you know Germany Hamburg Tokyo um, my favourite was Rio de Janeiro. Oh. So there was a tournament that started there in 2014 and I was actually living in Uruguay at the time. And so I'd been pestering the boss of the World Feed um, that broadcasted the event and I'd say, look, I'm literally just across the border. You've got to let me do this one. And yeah. eventually he relented and said, okay, yeah, we'll send you this one. And I was really young. Uh, I was 25 for a tennis commentator doing World Feed commentary going around you know, to millions and millions of people across the world. That's quite, quite young. So it's a bit of a risk on their part, but it paid off. And I'd be commentating on, say, Rafael Nadal, mm-hmm. who is one of the greatest sports people of all time. And then at the end of that commentary, I'd step out the commentary box and there is Christ the Redeemer looking over me. Oh, man. Rio de Janeiro. And my hotel wow. would be a And I was just like, this is... I'm being paid yeah. to be here in this absolute paradise, having the privilege of talking about some of the, the best sports people in the world. Crazy time. So I did that yeah. for a few more years and and then I and moved on to something else, which was, you know, a different experience. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. Like I could only imagine, like that's it's a very specific job and a very like Quite, quite an incredible job, quite an experience, because you're not only watching these world professional sporting events and comment, uh, commentating on them, but you're all over the world doing it. Like, it's it's quite quite a dream job, I think a lot of people would say. Um, man, I can I can only imagine, like I said, what, what's, what's your favorite sport um, overall? Like, what, what is, like, the, the fa- your favorite sport to commentate on or just uh, enjoy watching? Uh, it is tennis tennis is now my biggest sporting love Uh, it used to be football but I kind of fell out of love with it because it's been so commercialized it's now become yeah just a big business really and so support clients or customers rather than supporters Mm -hmm. uh, in the UK at least Mm -hmm. so um I I, yeah I kind of fell out out of love with it Mm -hmm. but you know I still enjoy it I still watch matches I still follow my team but no, tennis is my number one. Tennis is the thing yeah. I can just sit and watch from the start of the day until the end every yeah. day. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that too, because like America in America, um, sports are like everything, and they're highly commercialized, and, and and a lot of economies are built on sports. Our public school systems, uh, a lot of especially in the South, like uh, 
a lot of high schools, um, they get a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's revenue or money, but it's, it's, a, it's something to do with that along those lines. And I'm probably butchering that a little bit, but it's, it's a huge thing in America. So the, the idea that people play sports just for recreation and for fun and for sport is, is, is different for a lot of Americans. Um, I remember like, I think it was Ian, he was telling me once about rugby uh, used to not be as like famous and popular as I guess it is now that it, growing up, you would have doctors, lawyers, just regular blue collar, white collar workers and from all walks of life, they would just play, they would play professionally, but they had a career as well. But this is a very different to what is American sports. You're, you're solely just the professional player and you get paid millions and millions of dollars from sponsors and all this other stuff. So it's funny you mentioned that. Is, is that? Yeah. Well, nowadays at the top level, at the top level of UK sport, the main sports, football, cricket, rugby, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. It's very rare. I think, well, in fact, in the top divisions of those sports, everybody's a professional now. So they're full time, a sports person. Yeah. Um, and gradually it's changing with the um, women's sport as well. You know, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of disparity there in equality. Uh, thankfully, there's a professional women's uh, football league as well now. So mm-hmm. um that's catching up too, which is great. So um, I think, you know, only in sports like hockey, field hockey is big or quite big mm. in the UK and things like that. Um, ice hockey, there is a, a league, um, mm-hmm. but it's quite niche. So the yeah. people who like ice hockey in the UK are absolutely crazy. Yeah. But outside yeah. of that, <laughs> outside of that bubble, that's about it really. Um, yeah, but it's it's become a, a very professionalized area sport yeah. now um, yeah. for most sports in the uk yeah yeah so what was the jump um because i know we sh- you just you're just about to get into it what was the jump between this to doing the humanitarian work and i'll let you go into all the details of what exactly you did and all that yeah well the humanitarian stuff um that was never say a career mm-hmm. and I didn't actually, I haven't actually done as much as it might come across as, but it's just mm-hmm. that the humanitarian stuff that I've done has been so profound for me personally and transformational mm-hmm. um, that it has been, you know, it's been a big turning point in my life, really. So about five years ago, five and a half years ago, I'd had this nagging thought in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something that was actually going to help people with mm-hmm. my professional life because there I was swanning around the world and taking support but it wasn't helping anybody mm-hmm. so I was thinking about what could I do that used my skill set and what did I want to do you know what was going to be my professional purpose going forwards and I did this course it was through an organization called Escape the City and they've, they're in the US now as well and primarily they're set up to help people break out of their kind of golden handcuffs so if you're working in the city in London you know the financial district or if you're working for a corporation or something like that if you're in the corporate world but you don't want to be then you go to escape the city and they kind of do workshops and stuff to give you the tools to work out how to move forwards in a more fulfilling way oh. so although I wasn't working in the city or for a corporation I still wanted to know oh, I can 
Okay. Yeah, sorry. It just it broke up a little bit. So, um, and that's fine. Um, uh, what we'll do if it breaks up, is if the call starts breaking up or anything, um, I'll just pause and I'll go back and I can edit this little bit out and then let you start over. But uh, if you want to just start where um, I think I got to where, um, uh, what was it? The I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> yeah, just uh, um, I guess tell a little bit more about uh, just start where what the organization that you were talking about does. I know you said it helps people get out of the city more or less. Or um, so I guess just start from there and start over, and then and we'll go from there. What was the name? Yeah, should I just go from the start of that entire question? Yeah, that works. Sounds like it's quite. I'm sorry, this is just Mexico's internet's fault. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> okay, I'll go from, I'll go from, uh, from the top of that question. So, yeah, so I was saying, oh yeah. So the humanitarian stuff I've done, it's not actually been for great periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that they've been quite transformational periods in my life. So uh, back in 2015, start of 2015, I was starting to listen to this nagging thought in the back of my mind, which was, I want to do something with my career professionally that is actually going to help people. Because while I was jetting around, going to beautiful places around the world and talking about sport, it wasn't really improving anybody's life. And I was looking around, looking at all the problems in the world going, I'm not contributing to any solutions. So uh, I joined um, a course kind of thing with an organization called Escape the City, who help people mm. find uh, more fulfilling paths forwards with their careers, basically. And I did an exercise with uh, a career coach and she said, get with a partner. So I did answer this question. And the question was, when was the last moment you felt alive? And I could in London, all of this wow. kind of thing. And they were present. And the partners ask each other, what's underneath that? So I said to my partner, well, when I give my boyfriend a present, and he said, what's underneath that? And then I had to dig under and say, well, what's underneath why, why I felt alive about giving him that present? Mm -hmm. And uh, he had to keep on asking me what's underneath that. was. And eventually I struck gold because I realized that going forwards, any future career move that I had had to be underpinned by three things. Mm -hmm. One was helping people feel valued. The mm -hmm. second was helping people uh, to value each other. And the third was to help people to realize their ambitions. And that third one, helping people realize their ambitions, that came about because a year prior, I'd broken a world record for the longest ever squash marathon. So we mm. played, me and a mate played squash for 33 hours after about 14 months training. So it was all a bit bonkers. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, that's, that could, <laughs> what, what, what exactly is squash? Uh, Sorry, this, is, this might be new. Ah, right. So squash, uh, it's a racket sport. Um, it's like indoor tennis. Let's okay. put it like that. So you've got to hit all above a certain line and below a certain line. Mm -hmm. And you're encased in a room. So you can hit the ball off any wall, any of the four walls around you. Um, wow. So it's a very physically demanding, grueling sport. Yes. And my mate played squash. You know, he loved squash. For his birthday the previous year, 2013, I'd said to him, I will undertake to organize enough to break the world record for the longest ever squash marathon. The problem was that I didn't play squash and I wasn't fit. 
So I'd never in my life run more than 5K in one week. I was going, hey, I can play squash for 33 hours. So uh, long story short, um, I actually, in the midst of all that, moved to Uruguay for a job uh-huh. in sports broadcasting. And uh, I hunted down the Uruguay number one squash player who agreed to coach me and to give me free access to his private club, which was incredible. And uh, I also got the most amazing um, personal trainer who charged me only the equivalent of like six or seven dollars per session and yeah uh, they sat me down and told me I need to be running a half marathon every week and um, run more than five kilometers in one go before so that, that was a wake-up call but at marathons and then along in seven minutes uh, it got broken again oh, I don't know about eight months later or something like that but that didn't matter oh, to me at all we <laughs> had our target and we reached yeah. it and we got um, yeah you know so that was wow. great experience and so what I learned from that was that feeling of elation and also of relief of achieving something that was really important to you we were also raising money in memory of mine and Camilla's auntie auntie Anne and so that was an added motivation um and so that feeling of elation of achieving something miles out of my comfort zone, completely out of my comfort zone, I realized how empowering that was for me. And I wanted others to experience that same kind of feeling. So when I said about those three things that I had to underpin my future career move, that's why it contained helping people to realize their ambitions. Yeah. So I had those three things that I wanted to do, but I didn't have the actual vehicle for that. How does that manifest itself in the world? Yeah. But um, I'd had this idea I was wanting to work out how could I help people achieve their ambitions when I don't really know anything. Yeah. And then it dawned on me. So I toyed with the idea and actually cafe for an evening and literally just went on Facebook just all by myself and said, I want to experiment with this idea. And I was living in Brighton on the South coast of England at the time. And I said, does anybody have a goal or an idea or an ambition that they'd like to get support with mm-hmm. on this Tuesday night, we're all going to come together and we're going to share support for each other. And 33 wow. people showed up, all strangers, wow. all complete strangers. And it was just electric because I asked them to, instead of introducing themselves to each other, I just said, I want you to find somebody you've never met before. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to tell them about your goal, idea or ambition. So you've mm-hmm. got a room full of strangers. Yeah. And instead of that awkward talk you get, the levels were immediately boom, because everybody was talking about something they were passionate about. Yeah. And you could just feel the electricity. And after everybody had had those conversations, I then asked them to fill out a piece of paper, which said, my goal is, and then they fill out a little box saying what the goal is, and then what I need help with. So then they write a few bullet points of the things that could help them progress towards their ambition. Yeah. And then they had to stick it up around the room and everybody walks around the room looking at all of these different ambition sheets. And then yeah. as soon as you see a sheet that you can help with, so if you look at what somebody needs help with, and you go, I have some information or a contact or some advice oh. or an idea, or maybe I want to collaborate with that person. You jot that information down on a post-it note and stick it on their sheet. So then at the end of the evening, everybody takes back their sheet covered in post-it notes of all these people who are okay. saying, we don't just believe you can achieve this. Here's how we think how you can do it. And yeah. the feedback from everybody was amazing. People just going, wow, this is so great. Never been to an event like this. It's really exciting to have all these people believe in what I want to do it makes it feel much more vivid and a lot of the time people had never actually expressed that ambition they had before 
Yeah. And so having an occasion where I remember Chris Pagula in your first podcast was talking about the crab analogy. Mm-hmm. I think it was that podcast talking about the crab analogy of when somebody tries to break free of maybe their family or just their peers around them. Sometimes they can be dragged back down again. Yes. Because for one reason or another, they don't like to see somebody outside of that comfort zone. Yes. And it's so nice to see people find a different, a different crowd of people who are actually helping them get out of that bucket. Yes. It's, it's, I think it was uh, my conversation with my buddy, Adam and uh, Hey, same name, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Glass. He, uh, he, we, we talked about the bucket of craps and it's, it's something special. Um, his, his thing was don't tell anybody. It, it's kind of contrary to what you're saying a little bit. He, his was don't tell anybody and just go do what you want to do. And then, you know, then go present, present what you have to the world or to your friends and family because of the bucket of crabs thing. And it's, but what it, it is something special though, isn't it? When you can get in a room with a bunch of strangers that, that just boost you up and say, yeah, just go for it. Because a lot of people too, they're in, in these kind of echo chambers of people that kind of doubt them and say, uh, well, you got to do this. You're going to have to buy a, a lawnmower and a trailer and a truck and all these things before you can even consider, you know, starting your own thing or a bobber or whatever. Yeah, well, we actually really agreed with his message about don't tell people. And at the end of our events, we would actually say to people, if you are around people, we used that actual crab analogy at the events. And we said to people, oh, wow. if you are surrounded by people and your family who, who love you, mm-hmm. but because of that want to protect you and don't mm-hmm. want to see you step outside of your comfort zone in case of failure or whatever, mm-hmm. then don't tell them. Yeah. You know, you've just got this huge confidence boost here from complete strangers around you. Mm-hmm. Um, don't tell them yet if you think that's actually going to drag you back down. Mm-hmm. um so yeah completely agree with that sentiment yeah so what happened after i put on a couple of test events really well is that i it was 2015 and so it was the time when there was an emerging migration crisis because of people fleeing war and persecution in syria iraq and afghanistan mm-hmm. and i'd seen news footage and things of people coming ac- across on dinghies from turkey to greece Mm-hmm. and it looked an absolutely hopeless dire situation and because I was working freelance at the time it meant I was able to free up some time to be able to go over and I've never done anything like this before but I decided I was going to go over and volunteer so I arrived in Greece and got to the town where the biggest camp was mm-hmm. and I first of all volunteered for a few days in the smaller camp um and it's just kind of a constant flow of people. And I found myself in the most bizarre situations, like uh, on the first couple of days, one of my tasks that I was given was to take a, a mound of paper, these paper slips. And because people were arriving with no belongings whatsoever, because they'd either been stolen or they'd had to throw them overboard so they didn't sink in the sea, they were arriving without any documentation, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So one of my jobs was to basically write somebody's new identification papers for them. So if you imagine somebody coming from Syria who doesn't speak any English and I don't speak any Arabic and I'm having to try and note down their date of birth and their full name and they have very long names. Uh-huh. I also didn't know, have a clue how to spell them. Yeah. So if they were telling me the name was Mohammed, there are so many different ways you can spell Mohammed. 
So mm -hmm. I was just having to guess because there was no way being able to communicate the spelling because they don't even use the same script, the same Latin mm -hmm. script. So, you know, people are walking around Europe now with passports with their names in it. However, I chose to spell it <laughs> on that day. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> which um, was a yeah. um, and then you know there'd be situations where like there'd be this. I remember this man who he was carrying his granddad on his back, and he'd been carrying him carrying him on his back for three weeks. Oh, forests in Turkey and Iran and all sorts and his granddad he had a broken arm um, or maybe a dislocated shoulder and you know he was yelping in pain groaning in pain they hadn't eaten absolutely dire they were being yelled at by the Greek police who were at the camp at the time who were having to register them and I had to rush around and use my very basic first aid knowledge to get a scarf from somebody Mm -hmm. and use it as a sling for his granddad and uh then i was like we've got to get this man a wheelchair he can't just mm -hmm. be carried around you know he's a man who's probably late 70s early 80s very frail mm -hmm. uh, and eventually we did find him a wheelchair and, and then that's the last i saw of them so they leave this kind of very lasting impression on you and then that's it yeah. um but that was in the better camp so that was in the, the syrian families and there was greater need in the larger camp, which was basically for everybody else. And that's in a place called Moria. And I arrived there one night and there were not enough volunteers. A lot of the volunteers that were going over were staying on the coast where the boats came in because a lot of them were Instagrammers and Facebookers and they just wanted those glory shots of rescuing the baby from the sea type thing. Mm. But when it came down to the nitty gritty work, working through the night, helping give dry clothes to people who were who were nearly drowned they didn't want to be anywhere near that which meant that at night times there were often few volunteers um this was all a very fresh situation and it was just bizarre thinking where on earth is the eu because mm -hmm. this is on eu territory yeah where are the major charities mm -hmm. they were almost nowhere to be seen it was just left to regular people coming from all over to try and help out so I turned up at that large camp at about midnight uh -huh. and I just walked up to a group of volunteers who were frantically running around trying to do everything and so I arrived at the larger camp Maria and there was a load of volunteers frantically running around trying to do things um, because people were arriving by the busload all the time throughout the night soaking wet with no food starving traumatized and I went up to one of the volunteers and said, hi, I've just arrived. Um, I just want to help out in any way I can. And she gave me a huge batch of 16 tents. And she said, go up and down the hill, search for the most vulnerable people and get them inside a tent. And if somebody who's not vulnerable asks for a tent, say, no, sorry, can't do it. And so there I was on my own, walking up and down this hill in the dark, no light at all, almost. And I was searching around for elderly people or new mothers with their babies and going up to them and obviously not being able to speak Arabic or Farsi or any of the other languages that were being spoken there, just trying to gesticulate or with the very, very basic words that I picked up in Arabic saying, you know, I've got a tent that you can have. And of course, yeah. I leap at that chance. Um, and although there were pop-up tents, they still needed, you know, uh, pegging down and things. And of course, unsurprisingly, I started to get a big following of people who all wanted a tent because this was mid-November 
in Greece and the weather was down to two degrees and everybody wanted a tent of course so there was this huge group of people and I was having to say no I'm really sorry I've got to keep these tents for the most vulnerable the ill people babies etc and I I was really worried you know I was tensing up expecting some kind of comeback from them some kind of anger but no they all just smiled they understood and they walked by and moved on and there was certain groups of people who started helping me put up all the tents, get people into the tents, doing it on my own was quite a challenge. So I really appreciated their support, but I was dreading the moment I was going to have to say to them, sorry, I know you've just helped me for hours, but you're not going to get one. And then I got down to my last couple of tents and it turned out that they weren't expecting one. And they actually just walked away, not waiting for any thanks, not wanting anything in return. I just thought, wow, you know, after all they'd been through, the least they deserved was a tent. And they've yeah. just spent the last hours already exhausted helping me help others themselves. Amazing. So I was down to the last two tents and then somebody came up to me. It was a group of four men, able-bodied men. And I was thinking, okay, I've just got to tell this group now that they can't have a tent either. And I said as much to them. And then the elder man, he touched me on my arm and said, please, sir, We've been traveling for three weeks. We haven't eaten in three days. They'd come from Afghanistan, playing the Taliban. And he said, and I'm blind. I'm blind and I just need some rest. I was like, oh my gosh. And what could I possibly do? Of course, I had to give them a tent, so I did. And because they were eating in three days, they were absolutely starving. And so I ran back to the other volunteers and said, do we have any food? And it just so happened at that moment that another volunteer had arrived who lived on the island, who had just gone and done a supermarket shop at the 24-hour supermarket. And so she had a boot full of food and we ended up giving most of it to this family (laughs) instead of her own family, which was an incredible. And, uh, but you know, it was literally bread rolls and carrots and apples, you know, not a feast, Mm -hmm. but it was something, it was food, it was nutrition. Yeah, they were ever so thankful. And then, you know, it was about half three or four in the morning and I was standing there on this really cold hill. People who had just been fleeing all of this, they weren't even being given blankets most of the time. A lot of people were having to sleep in the mud on the ground under their coats in two degree heat. And that was the welcome they got to flee from what they were running away from. And you're saying there's no... EU presence, there's no charity presence, it's just left to the people to pretty much sort this whole debacle out. And there's people like you're saying that have Minimal. been traveling yeah. for weeks and haven't eaten for days and they're sick, they're blind, they're tired and no one's there to help. Yeah, that's, in terms of official response, it was minimal. That's that's really insane. Uh, and I mean, the big charities were yeah, I was worried. I was wondering, you know, where are these big charities, you know, that you see yeah. advertising for your money all the time? We've got yeah. this huge crisis and they're almost nowhere to be seen. And in fact, yeah. one of the major charities who I won't name just in case they want to try and chase after me. But one of the major charities who you could probably guess the name of very quickly, um, they they actually came to us looking for materials. because They didn't have su- sufficient supplies for the most basic things like bandages and tape and that kind of thing. Absolute lunacy. And you know, we questioned this and said, why are they not here? Why are they not coming? And, and it turned out it's because they were worried that 
people wouldn't want to donate to the home and they'd consider it an EU issue. So the EU should be able to fund it because they've got the money. And of mm. course, there is some validation in that. It's a very, mm. very, very co complex issue. Yeah. Um, extremely complex. That's a whole other podcast and I'm not qualified to go through <laughs> all the outs of it. But yeah. It seems like it is a shame though. It just was completely unfair. It seems like it is a shame, though, that that politics, it sounds like I, we don't have to get all into it. Like you said, it's a whole nother podcast, but politics would get in the way of helping people. And is that more or less what it was or am I a little off? It's not just what it was. It's what it still is. It's mm. now worse than ever right now in Moria. And yeah. it's not because there's a lack of money. And it's not because of a lack of people wanting to help there right now, because I went back again in uh, late 2019 and the numbers of volunteers there and the NGOs that have started up from grassroots, they are incredible. However, it's most deliberate. It's completely deliberate what's happening to keep these people in abominable condition because they don't want to uh, have a situation where they think that other people in other countries will see it as a, a soft place to go to so that it's easy to go to Greece and they'll look after you. So they basically mm. don't want more people to come. I think if they make the conditions horrendous, that will stop as many people wanting to come. But the fact that they keep on coming undeterred because what they're fleeing up from is so much worse yeah. should tell us something, but there's yeah. just no political will for it. Yeah. And um, I, I, uh, yeah. I mentioned this in a, uh, another podcast uh, with my buddy Kelly about um, the saying, like, I grew up playing sports and you know, you're, uh, I don't know if you heard it or not, but it's, it's a common saying, it's your strong is your weakest link. And, you know, it's, it's a shame we let politics and other things get in the way of helping our neighbors. And I was just on the phone last night with a guy I'm hoping is going to come on the show here. We're arranging mid-November for him to come on, but he, he, uh, he grew up and got involved with crime and drugs and um, ended up in the prison system. And when I was on the phone last night, I was almost in tears just hearing this guy's story because he got trapped really in this system. And it almost seems like there's no way out. And when, when you do finally get out, it's, you don't have much to lean on. You don't have much support. And I know we're talking about very different situations from refugees to a guy that served time in prison, but it's the idea that these people that are struggling, there doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive a lot of the times to help people and lift people up to a level playing field or more or less um, these charities and the EU or what we have here in America. We don't seem to, um, we seem to politicize these, these kinds of things where it, to me, and I, I'm not the all-knowing by any means, but I, I kind of fall back to that that thing I just said, like you're as strong as your weakest link. And I I would love to help those in need because the end result is we all win together. And I'm not trying to paint the picture as if life's a game or anything like that, but it just it just seems very strange that you can literally live like on one block or you know, right on the border of another country, and there's all these other people right next to you struggling, but there's so many things that get involved for, I guess, there being a way for to help thy neighbor or however you want to say it, if any of that yeah. makes sense. 
the two situations are extremely different in many ways in terms of it being you know, refugees and somebody yeah. in the prison system. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there are similarities as to cause. And that's what we have to look at. You know, we mm-hmm. can try and treat the symptoms as much as possible, but with mm-hmm. cause. And yeah. with the prison system in many countries, um, I don't want to just pick on the US, but it's, of course, really punitive. Mm. And yes. know, in the US, you've got a situation where people are actually forced or not forced, but I don't know the ins and outs of it, but they're being paid very, very, very low wages to do work, sometimes mm. that benefit corporations. Yeah, and the prison, prison system is basically a corporation. <laughs> Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's, so, that's a, yeah. Of course, to suit the needs of the oppressor. And the oppressor is often uh, the same entity, whether it's a government um, or whether it's, whether it's a corporation or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the causes of these situations, like you say, it's politics. Yeah. There are so many political games. There are so many players involved. Um, there's the EU, there's Turkey, there's the US, you know, as far as that, it, it's everywhere. And it all becomes this proxy situation where mm-hmm. nations are kind of battling out um, for, for what they consider to be right. And they're using the lives of human beings as pawns, yeah. whether it be in exactly. the prison system or whether it be the war that was started because of those nations in the first place going over there and meddling and and helping to create conflict. So it's all messed up, but it's got to change big time, especially when it comes to refugees. And I don't say that just because it's the right thing to do to change things and give people safe passage um, and to stop helping to stop. Anybody listening, we've had a few connection problems. We're gonna try to give it one more go and see if uh, we can make it work. We were just talking about Adam's humanitarian work with refugees in Le- Le- how do you, how do you say it? Lebos? Lebos? Is that right, Adam? Lesbos. 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 And um, yeah, so we were talking about that. And I think we got uh, up until um, the second camp you had gone to, you talk about the family from Afghanistan that hadn't, um, um, they'd been traveling for, I think, a week or so. They haven't eaten in three days. And yeah, let's, let's start from right after there. Yeah, so that was my first night in the, in the largest camp, Moria. And so at that time, there was about a thousand people living there. And it was a transition camp, basically. So this is back in 2015. And people would arrive, they'd stay one, maybe two nights, and then they'd get a ferry to the mainland, which they'd pay for out their own pockets because they weren't short on money. They were, they were the richest people, you know, the most qualified people. Uh, doctors, nurses, lawyers, all sorts of professional people, because they were the ones who were able to afford the smugglers to get them to that part of Turkey, to get them over into Greece. So, um, yeah, that was my (laughs) first day of that camp, which was eye-opening to say the least. I was a 26-year-old lanky lad who didn't really know what he was doing there, being given all of this responsibility. It just felt insane because it should have been dealt with by governments and well and that just wasn't happening and so it continued I'd spend my nights because I did the night shift when there was no one else around or very few people around in terms of volunteers Um, and I would be standing on a load of gravel at the bottom of a hill and people would arrive by the bus load soaking wet normally because they'd had to either jump into the sea or their, their 
their boat had capsized. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, oh, did hundreds drowned, uh, and it still happens today. And there was this one particular night where I was literally on my own amongst these bags of donated clothes to give to people who had just arrived with nothing but the soaking wet clothes on their backs. And there was a queue, you know, I, I'd learned the word for queue in Arabic, which was saf, 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 saf. Please get in a queue, please get in an orderly queue. And they did. And they'd come forwards and they'd tell me their shoe size. And I'd run around in these, rummage around in the bags looking for the right shoes and whatever. And then there was this lad who spotted I was really struggling because I was trying to communicate to people in different languages, you know, what kind of, what size t-shirt they needed or what size waist they were for their trousers or whatnot. And uh, so he said, would you like me to translate? I'm like, yes, 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 please, please, please do. So he did. And he came and he translated everything for me. And then he'd help get me the clothes. And he did this for a good three hours. And I didn't actually get a chance to speak to him because it was just a relentless stream of people coming. And uh, then eventually um, we got to the end of the queue and I sat down and chatted with him. And I assumed he was about 22. It turned out he was 15. And he'd learned wow. five languages. Wow. And English, one of them, fluently. He'd come from Afghanistan and he told me his story. And um, he said he'd been traveling for three days. They'd had to use two different smugglers because the first one locked them in a room in Iran and stole all of their belongings and all of their money and left there in Iran. And luckily they managed to communicate because one of them kept a phone, managed to communicate with back home and they managed to wire across enough money somehow so they, they could pay mm -hmm. another smuggler to get them from Iran to the edge of Turkey so they could come over to Greece. Um, and the reason he was having to flee with one of his brothers and two of his uncles was because while he was away working, because he was helping his brother, they were loggers or something like that. Um, they were on their way home one day and they got flagged down on the road and they were told, don't go home, they're waiting for you. Oh and man. The, the they is the Taliban. Man. And so instead, to one of their uncle's homes in a different village and they just waited for news. And the news came that their house had been burnt down and oh, there was no man. sign of his mom his dad and his little sister they'd gone missing and they had absolutely no option to flee but to flee because they knew that they would come after them as well and the reason the taliban were going after them was because their two elder brothers so there was uh, there were five children in the family and the two elder brothers had worked as interpreters for u.s troops and canadian troops and swedish troops mm. and because of that they were they were suspected of leaking sensitive information as far as the Taliban saw it to mm. foreign forces. And so they wanted the entire family dead, basically. And so oh, man. let's call him Ali, because I don't have his permission to identify him. So let's say Ali and his brother that he'd been working with, they had no option but to flee. He'd never left Afghanistan in his life, yet he'd learned these five languages uh, just from speaking to people, you know, foreign troops and whatnot. So he left Afghanistan for the first time, not having a clue what had become of his mum, dad and little sister. And five years on, he still has absolutely no idea. I've kept in touch with him. Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure he's come to the conclusion that they were murdered that day. Ugh. This is the kind of thing he was facing. And after three weeks of traveling to that Greek island, his first instinct was to help me help other people. Wow. Um, still 
it still gets me now just thinking about the generosity the kind-heartedness of that human being and of so yeah. many like in that situation yet he is the one who's demonized when yeah. he finally up as being an outsider as being criminal um as being unwanted basically and he's got so much talent he's such a kind-hearted person he's got so many skills he's so so clever um he's ended up in italy and luckily he's been given permanent residency there along with his brother awesome so he has a happy ending and uh, that was after a couple of years we were trying to uh, help him so me and a friend who is a trainee lawyer we're trying to help him achieve security because he, they were just not believing the evidence he had because of course he fled you know with nothing and yeah. arrived with nothing he had no evidence he just knew what had happened to him and so they were going oh well, you don't have any evidence so we're going to send you back which would have been certain death yeah and luckily finally in the end after his appeal he they said okay yeah actually we can't send you back clearly and so they um they gave him permanent residency and so he's building a life in italy now learning his sixth language <laughs> how about that wow that's 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 really incredible and um you know, we, we were talking about it when it, when uh, we ended the recording um, about like Kelly and like her nonprofit. Uh, and um, I know you wanted to say something about that. But before that, um, we, were, we were talking about how or I, I was saying like, you know, it's 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 so important um, from the aspect of like, you know, I, I think I'd said it. I don't know if I'd said it on. Okay, anyways, I'll just say it anyways. Sorry, I'm getting a little tongue-tied here. Let's just do it. <laughs> so um, the idea of you are as strong as your weakest link, and, you know, like, it's just so crazy and arbitrary to me that, that you know, there wouldn't be, you know, more of a call to help people that are, are trapped in these, these systems and, and in these situations. And, you know, when people look to, like, with Kelly, when I was talking with Kelly, like, the whole idea of finding purpose and stuff like that and her beginnings of her charity with fostering children, you know, it's, it's, it's not always about money necessarily. Sometimes, I mean, certainly money plays a big role in these things um, with getting supplies and tents and whatnot, but, you know, time in your effort um, to be hands-on and on ground serves a very, transformative experience for the person doing it but also it's it can mean so much more in a lot of ways as well if that makes any sense yeah it does and this is why i feel like this is the kind of work that needs to be funded more mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. almost goes without saying but i really do feel as if we need a change in mindset globally mm -hmm. about where money goes yeah and at the moment, we have grassroots NGOs and we have people like Kelly who are running small nonprofits who mm -hmm. have to rely on, on other people for money, to give them money, to help them help people. But mm -hmm. that's not, it's not secure. It's, mm -hmm. it's in many cases not sustainable either. And it draws a lot of attention away from doing the good work and instead just trying to get money to survive, which yeah. definitely the help that we're giving others is minimized. And so I would love there to be a mindset shift for everybody involved in nonprofits um, and people who aren't, people who are regular citizens doing honest jobs, you know. We need to make sure that nonprofits feel like they have the right to be proud to make money. Yeah. Because if people who are running charitable projects and whatnot, 
if they are not making money sustainably and comfortably, then they're just not anywhere near as effective. And they're the ones we need to be more effective so more people in vulnerable situations and and other causes can be helped the most. So if if we as people who are wanting to run nonprofits or whatever, if we're feeling like we don't deserve to be making money, then that means that money is going to remain elsewhere with mm-hmm. say shareholders of corporations. You know, it's going to stay with that one percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't trickle down. I mean, that's the argument that's often given, that it'll trickle down to the bottom. It just doesn't. It would have happened by now because the same system's been held up for decades. But so we have to we have to take pride in earning money so we can do more good in the world. So we're enabled and empowered to do more good in the world. Um, So I'd really love for Kelly to be able to find a route to make plenty of money. Yeah. And why not also be rewarded for doing the good? If yeah. we all feel like money is a reward, then why are we directing people to do things that don't help humanity in order to be rewarded for that money? It should be the mm-hmm. opposite, we, especially now. And things I feel are really yeah. changing. Well, yeah. We were talking about the coronavirus and how that has impacted how people are suddenly realizing the power they have at a local community level. Yeah. With groups and things like that popping up um i I don't know what it's been like where you are in el paso has that been a has that been quite prominent yeah so um a little bit about that like i can't attest to a lot of the stuff people are doing um in in the charitable sense i know i've seen lots of food banks open up and drive-through food banks and stuff like that that's definitely a big thing that's flowing um if anybody wants to get involved and stuff like that but um I, I specifically remember, so I don't know if I've told you this, but I was in a, a conducting a military training when the height of coronavirus had started off. So like we were just hearing whispers of coronavirus. We had no idea really what was going on. And I remember leaving El Paso, going to the training event. I'm out in the middle of the desert, no internet connection or horrible internet connection, if that. And then hearing whispers of coronavirus coming back to civilization. And it's a ghost town in a different world. And I remember specifically one of the first times I walked into Walmart, I just don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's, there was a different, it was like a different vibe. It, it, there's a, a, here's a better one. And, and, and I know you were talking about global warming to some degree before the phone, uh, before the call started getting connected. I don't want to hear about that, but this is kind of uh, into the topic of global warming a little bit. So like I said, I came out to back to El Paso and every, the streets were empty. Everything was pretty, pretty vacant. And there was like this historic outbreak of yellow poppies. And it was, it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen uh, alongside the mountain in El Paso. And I remember going there with Camilla and a couple of friends and we're walking around. There's tons of people walking around, social distancing, all that. But there was just like this sense of belonging and like we're in this together. And people were very kind and in a way that I just hadn't really gotten before uh, before coronavirus, and it it was like a sense of like, hey, we're all in this together, and it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my experience. I, I forgot the question that, that well, led I, up to this, but um, anyways, it remained that way because you know it's been what seven months now since mm-hmm. since it really mm-hmm. started affecting communities across the US as mm-hmm. about the same time as it did in the UK. Yeah. Um, 
is that been sustained or are so, people starting to get a bit wary and weary? So, yeah, so I, I would say in a lot of ways, yes. And in a lot of ways, no. So, so immediately at the height of it, yes, that it was, it was a lot like that, like I described. And then unfortunately, a lot of politics started getting involved and uh, there was the height of a lot of racial issues as a lot of people know in the US and that put a, lit a lot of people back on guard which was very unfortunate. And then the elections coming up heightened those racial tensions, political tensions, everything started to amp back up again. And I suspect though, that it's all, I suspect it's, it's more or less not as true as the media makes it seem. It makes it us seem, and I'm sure from the outside looking in, makes us seem very divided and that we hate each other and we're on the brink of civil war. And there might be some truth to that, but more so in very niche groups, very small groups that seem to uh, speak louder than the, the majority or that they sound a lot louder than the majority of us. But I, I, I suspect that the majority of us want to get back to a sense of belonging, a sense of center, some normalcy. Um, and I, I don't think it's as crazy as maybe people on the outside uh, see us. I don't think there's this um, crazy uh, American Civil War II on the outbreak, um, more or less. I want to say it has sustained. Um, you just don't hear about it as much. Yeah. Well, that's reassuring to hear. I mean, the big test, of course, will be the 3rd of November in the aftermath, mm -hmm. which has probably already happened by the time people listen to this, so they will have found mm -hmm. out. Um, but that's yeah, that's definitely reassuring to hear because uh, I have to say, looking from the outside in, the the news that we see is just constant permanent division. Yeah, um, yeah, and 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 there there is division for sure, and I think it's I think it's a lot of things. You know, where you have our country, America is very weird. It's it's hard to say. Like I've I've been lucky enough to meet with uh, other Europeans and. Um, people from Asia and stuff like that and lived in South Korea for a while. And the idea that we're all the same is, is not true at all. It could be furthermore from the truth. Like Americans, like you have very rural areas and very wild country and you have very populated cities and, and Seattle's very different to New York and New York's very different to LA. And then LA is very different to um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I grew up. And then all that's very different to the, the rural country and wild of, of America. And it's to say that one size fits all, like one political ideology works best for this area or that area is kind of absurd. And I think, you know, there's a lot of opinion on this, on, on which way, um, how government's role should um, play in the U.S., but it's a very tricky thing because, like I said, it's not a one-size-fit-all problem for, for Americans because a lot of people resonate with what works in, in South Dakota doesn't work the same way it does in New York City. It's just, and it's a very strange thing, and um, and I'm not the guy to figure it out <laughs> or understand or understand it, really. I just, I, I've, I've been very lucky to travel across the U.S. and meet people from all over the country and it's it's a it, you'll meet great people everywhere you go in this country uh, one of my favorites is alaska <laughs> alaska and camilla will tell you like i went up there 
uh, when I took my break in service back in 2015 with a good friend of mine and Camilla and Olivia. And I swear, Alaska in, in downtown Anchorage, some of the most friendly people you'll meet. And it's, they're, they're so nice. They're, they're so welcoming. They have no problem going up to a stranger and be like, oh, you're not from, they just know too. They can read it on you. Like, oh, you're not from here. Welcome to Alaska. And um, they're a very more right-leaning Republican conservative state. And it's, they live a very different life to someone from New York. It's cold. The hours are different. It's very wild up there. It's, it's, it's just a totally different place. And I don't know. It's, I, I just, as much as we have varying opinions and we're very on this spectrum of many beliefs politically and culturally and all these things economically, I think more or less, if you dig, peel back the onion layers of where these beliefs come from, you'll find more in common than different. I think more or less everyone does and believes what they believe because they want a better life for their kids, a better life for their future generations. And then when you try to mix those with um, on the bigger playing, uh, the bigger playing field, it just looks very divided. And I'm, and like I said, I'm probably doing a really bad job of explaining this, but yeah. Well, what you say about there being not a one size fits all, I mean, that plays itself nicely into what I see the future becoming. And that is that there's going to be a lot more locally organized political action. Yes. Yeah. And that's very interesting you say that because one thing I think I'm realizing is like in America, so you have mayors, which runs, uh, they're like the mayor of the city. And then you have a governor of the state. And then these, these things, one thing I've, I've thought very funny recently, especially coronavirus, I think it's brought light to this is these are popularity contests. So, so in order for you, you to get selected for these positions, you're not necessarily qualified. You're just the most popular guy in town. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of issues with that. I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do from there, but surely like you need someone that's qualified to handle certain affairs uh, when it comes to things like COVID and where do we go from there? Mm. Well, this is it. So COVID, and I think back as well to Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane mm -hmm. Harvey as well in the US, because they were fine examples of local people taking power into their own hands to do extraordinary things. Yeah. So those hurricanes, you had people who owned fishing boats all rallying around together yes. to go out and do rescues of regular people using technology. So people who were stranded would use an app on their phone to communicate where they were. And then other regular citizens would go along and rescue them. And then yes. the afterwards, there'll be people uh, mm -hmm. together to provide food and other essential items for people. And that had minimal federal interference, which was great. Yeah. Yes. Those kinds of things. And then the mutual aid uh, projects that have risen during the coronavirus pandemic. It's been a really positive glimpse into the future for me. Yeah. And week I was talking to somebody called Indra Abnan. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing now is I, I facilitate and moderate events online now that there are a lot more online events of course that mm -hmm. serve to benefit people and planet and so I was involved in a summit for five days over the last weekend called Negotiating the New Normal run by the Future Law Institute and mm -hmm. there was one person I had the pleasure of doing what was called a fireside chat with for 90 minutes 
and uh, Idra Anam was talking about cosmo-local consciousness and suffering. Mm. So cosmo-local consciousness basically means people using their resources and power that they do have but often don't realize at a local level, level to enforce change on a local level. So that's the local part. The cosmo part is that those networks connect with other similar networks in other places. Mm -hmm. So a community in Tennessee could perhaps learn something about new farming methods from people in Kathmandu in Nepal. Yes, yes. Um, and she's, she's trying to encourage people to do that more um, because so often we leave it up to governments or we, you know, there are potholes in the road and so we, yeah. we complain about the council when we don't realise there's so much we can do ourselves. Yeah. And you might think, well, I'm paying my taxes so they should do it. But as long as the system stays as it is, there isn't enough incentive for all these things to get done because yeah. it not make the rich people richer, which ultimately yeah. politics is all about. So mm -hmm. <laughs> in my view, so if we can take things more locally and put power into people's hands locally, we can yes. see a lot like we did with those hurricanes um, yeah. as well in the US. So I think this is going to grow more and more. And especially when you see how young people right now are coming through and they are seeing into the future much more vividly than older people are mm -hmm. because mm. they affected by it so we've seen the climate yeah. movement around the world which has been incredible to see unfold mm -hmm. and there's such a unity of voice and i'm not saying that all young people agree and all young people are out on the streets as activists they're not at all of course there's differences but there's a huge feeling of there's a huge realization of the power that people have when they get together um, yeah it's an anarchic level meaning not let's overthrow the government anarchic meaning uh using uh power in an equitable way as well mm -hmm. so i find this very exciting anyway yes yeah and it gives me optimism because otherwise i would despair at the world as is so easy to do if you yeah. pay attention to the media and twitter <laughs> yeah yeah you definitely don't want to be getting your all your information from social media and stuff like that that's that's probably not the most constructive but very interesting you said smaller government because i've been a, like i've been more so leaning towards the idea of that we definitely need to work on government in the more community sense in our small in a smaller way i don't and i know the more um, radical ideas like self-government and I think it's it's difficult right so I think that's the most so here's here's my thing with with like self-government is um, I don't know how it is in the UK or not or in Mexico but like self-government I feel like it's it goes both ways actually so human beings are not perfect like we are very flawed we make mistakes I've made tons of mistakes and you know, flip-flopped on the way I believed and, and saw things over my short period of life. And we're, we're definitely not perfect people, perfect uh, species or whatever you want to call us. And the problem with self-government is like, if you go to a Walmart uh, shopping cart or shopping uh, par uh, parking lot, sorry, <laughs> there's carts literally scattered all across the parking lot. And this is probably a really horrible um way to describe self-government but when left up to the individual it's it's a shame that we can't even get the shopping carts in the they they place like these little stations all over the parking lot to to put put the carts up but they just it can never be done it's it, without fail you go to any grocery uh parking lot across the u.s you'll find carts all over the place 
And then the other thing on the other side of the coin, you know, having one guy rule us all or having government take control of the entire situation, that's seems to be problematic as well when you place someone in charge when, like I said, human beings are very flawed and it becomes a very tricky situation. Does that, does that any of that make sense at all? Yeah. Well, when I think about the shopping trolley situation at the supermarket, why are they doing that? Why are they leaving them around all over the place? It's because they don't feel a responsibility. Mm. They don't feel like they should have to. They don't feel like they need to. They don't mm. see the value in it. Yeah. And they don't feel a responsibility because they don't feel they have power. Yeah. Why don't they have power? Because they don't have any power. They've got no control in any sense of mm. what happens in their area, or so they feel. But if there was, um, if they were part of a community of people who here's a good example right i was uh, learning about a situation in france south of france in marseille mm-hmm. and there were some riots there there were a lot of tensions uh, within the community and there were all these riots going up and there, there were smashing um shops and all sorts of businesses but the one thing they didn't smash up was the mcdonald's mm. and why didn't they smash up the McDonald's? You would think of all the businesses, surely like McDonald's, one of the biggest corporations in the world, they wouldn't think twice about smashing that up. Yeah. But they didn't. And the reason was, is because they felt a responsibility to that particular McDonald's because it was run by a manager who had made sure that he'd taken some of the youngest, most vulnerable people, the ones that had perhaps even been in prison, and he'd given them jobs and then not given up on them. Wow. And created an atmosphere so that everybody there felt as if that McDonald's belonged to them and it belonged yeah. to the community and it was their responsibility to protect it. Yeah. So whilst McDonald's got demolished because it was just seen as, you know, just something to take money from one place and give it to someone else, you know, it, this McDonald's was a symbol of mm-hmm. what happens when you give people responsibility. Yeah. You say, this is yours. This is your yeah. place to feel safe and this is where you belong. So if we can create more spaces like that, where people feel they have power to, to, to determine its future, yeah. then people have a greater sense of responsibility. So they're going to look after their own areas more. Yeah. And that's, and that's a big thing too, with it, with it, a lot of things. I think with, if there's more sense of community with, um, with even let's I'll go into like police, like it's, it's, there's such a divide between your average citizen and police that it's, 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 it's a shame, like, because I feel like police, police in America have a very, very difficult job, a very, very hard job. Um, and I, it's, it's a shame because I, I was in jiu-jitsu for a while until COVID started yeah. um, breaking out. And I, I had a few police officers that were in my, uh, not class, but in the gym I went to. And um, some of the greatest guys you'd ever meet. They're very, very uh, great guys that wanted, they, they joined the police force, they're family guys. They, they wanted to join the police force to better their community. But the shame is, is there's a disconnect between them and the community. And mm. I, don't, I don't know the answers of how to solve that, but I, I think that definitely, because I know policing is a big topic in America right now. And I think um, trying to get your police officers back embedded in your community somehow where it's they're they're not presence is no not in a fearful way but in a oh I feel safer because next my next door neighbor John he's a police officer and I've talked to John I know him I know his kids and you know maybe doing ride-alongs maybe 
seeing what it is that John has, Officer John has to deal with, and maybe also um, ride-alongs with the mayor doing ride-alongs, maybe monthly or, or quarterly or something like that, to get an idea of what these police officers deal with. And I mentioned this, to, I think it was to Kelly, I can't remember who it was, but a lot of the problems, and I know I'm making this about police officers now, <laughs> I don't mean to jump topics, but um, it, it revolving around community, more or less. Um, police officers, I, I, uh, oh man, the thought just left me. Where was it? They, I hate it. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> I completely agree with the sense of trying to help police officers, police officers becoming more embedded in their community because yeah. at the moment there's a sense in many places that police officers aren't there to do their jobs, which mm -hmm. is protect the community, but instead yes. of punish the community yes exactly and that's i that that's exactly where i was going with it too so punish the community right so like the the relationship should be when you look at a police officer should you should see them oh that's the protector of the neighborhood that guy he lives three doors down and he's he's our he's our police officer to help make sure my neighborhood stays safe so my kids can go outside and play and it's and i love those things growing up i used to be able to go outside, ride my bike, and, you know, I'd be gone for hours, and that seems to be something that's lost now. A lot of people are afraid to let their kids go out, and I hate that, because that, that was some of the greatest memories I have, is being a kid going out and riding my bike around the town, and um, the thing about the idea that a police officer is someone that would, so here, here's how I broke it down, right? So in my line of work, like being military, if you are in a toxic unit, the difference between a toxic, and I'm not advocating for toxic units in a workplace like an office, but there's a big difference, right? So if you are in a toxic office and you have a toxic work environment, you work in an office, it's it's very shitty and I and I hate that and I and I hope it gets better, but it's very different dynamic when you're in a toxic police station. And you work in there, it can mean life or death in a lot of cases, which it might not mean in an office. So when you work in a toxic police station, it can get very tricky. And there has to be some kind of accountability, I believe, to keep these kind of toxicities out of workplaces where the outcome can mean life or death. And I think that's something we really need to consider because once that trust is broken with the police department or your military or any of these other things that are really helping keeping your community together in a lot of ways or countries safety you know that that mistrust is is very trust is very hard to get back in a lot of ways and where we go forward i really don't know but it's yeah so that's 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 kind of my spiel on community policing police officers yeah. <laughs> ultimately it comes down to empathy mm -hmm. And empathy is something that has been severely lacking in the last few years in many different areas of life. Mm -hmm. and empathy actually means different things to different people. I mean, I break it down to be four types of empathy. The main two that we're familiar with is emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. So emotional empathy, meaning that you really feel the pain that somebody else is going through. Yeah. And cognitive empathy being that you understand it it doesn't lead necessarily to compassionate action. So, for example, um, Donald Trump is somebody who has a great deal of empathy. But I'm not talking about emotional empathy. I'm talking about cognitive empathy. He knows what a lot of people are feeling scared about or feeling angry about 
and yes. he knows how to communicate to them. He's really skilled. So yeah. a lot of people, he's this clown. He's not. He's very intelligent. Mm-hmm. He knows what he's doing in that regard. And and if we can combine the two, the emotional empathy with the cognitive empathy, then that's where people start to come together. But mm-hmm. because of vision and because people don't recognize each other in many situations, whether it's policing in the community or um, even regular citizens towards refugees or whatever it might be, because mm-hmm. we don't have that empathy where we take that step to understand at a cognitive level what's going on so that we can build those em- emotionally empathic bonds, it really frustrates the process of being able to take step forwards together because yeah. we're seeing as the other all of yeah. the time when in fact there's truth that can emerge there's a common truth that can emerge between any two parties if they just go through that process of establishing empathic bonds with each other and even though it feels so polarized in many situations and sometimes with that toxicity you talk about within police departments or whatever it might be it might seem impossible to bring people together. It's, it's really not. Um, yeah. And we see it in disaster zones. You know, we see it when when tragedy strikes, like I was talking before about the, the hurricanes thing. That's when people come together and the, re- yeah. the rules are rewritten. Yeah. Um, so we don't want more tragedies to occur, um, but let's, let's keep rewriting the rules. Let's keep on forging those empathic bonds. Of course. Um, something yeah. that I'm really, really keen to do. And with my nonprofit over the last four years, Ambigo, it's all been about that. It's been about building those empathic bonds between people. So we get people coming together from really diverse backgrounds. So we've had homeless people at the same event as uh, an estate agent, mm-hmm. um, people from all walks of life, from different cultural backgrounds as well, and ages and different disabilities. We've had recovering addicts, all sorts of people come to our events. And yet when the event begins, they don't focus on the difference they embrace the diversity it's not that they're overlooking it mm-hmm. they embrace that diversity and they see that each person there has their own value to bring mm. and that manifests itself in the support shared between them so they'll give each other all of this information contacts and advice and they'll also be sharing their own goals ideas and ambitions which helps people realize what you said before that people actually have a lot more in common than yeah. they initially realize because yeah. before that step is taken to make a connection with somebody else all you see is the difference you don't see the commonality and so my nonprofit has been all about bringing those people from different backgrounds together to forge those empathic bonds so that they can share resources with each other collaborate more and hopefully that ripples out so hopefully for example if person uh let's say an older white man who's prejudiced against uh, a younger asian population in the city they come mm-hmm. together they realize that they've actually got more in common they have they both have goals they both want to support their families and these kinds of things they they recognize the commonality hopefully mm-hmm. then that is out so each party as they continue forward with their life they don't see the difference before they see the commonality um i mean that's very it's a very difficult thing to measure but mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's really worked for us over the last few years and We've not had a single event actually that we've put on where somebody has said, I didn't enjoy that. I didn't get anything out of it. Um, And it all comes down to this as well, reciprocity. uh Meaning when you give something, it feels good. And that's how as human beings we're wired to be. It's supposed to be good to give. Because back in primal times, 
we needed to be sharing resources in order to yes. survive, we needed to be collaborating in order to overcome the predator that was going to come and devour us. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, if we can get into, that's why the mutual aid thrives. There's so many people, you know, who are finding so many more hours in the day that they didn't think they had. And instead of, you know, just watching TV, they're out there helping others in their community. And it's infectious. It grows. People yeah. want to be a part of it. It just takes that one person at the start to step forward and say, well, I'm going to do this. And yeah. there have been so many unsung heroes who have done just that. Regular people in their community, again, who are realizing their power at a local level. Yeah, I, I'm 100% resonating with everything you're saying. I, I, I spoke exactly this with Kelly. Like when you when you start helping other people, especially in your community, or it doesn't even have to be in your community, just helping other people in general for um, it just, it completely changes you. It's a humbling, uh, and a lot of times it's a humbling experience. And Kelly, she was like, I don't even care if you start for selfish reasons, just start. Because as soon as you start yeah. helping people, it's going to change you. Like all that selfishness will melt away and you're not, you're not going to be the same person that comes out of it. And yeah. I, and it's funny you mentioned, um, you know, like about primal times and stuff like that. Cause you know, you're, you're, you're spot on, you know, I read this book called, um, um, Oh, I can't even remember the name of it. Sapiens. Oh, yeah. It talks, it talks a lot about like how man came along, but more or less, um, there's a show called alone and it's made me think of that book and the show the, the show alone. And basically they take someone and they throw them out in the wild and they have to survive on their own for as long as they can with limited amount of resources and tools and stuff like that. And you come to find out a lot of these, a lot of the struggle isn't these, these are very skilled uh, people that, that they select for this show that um, will, that do very, very well. They know how to live outside in the outdoors. And what you find one of the biggest problems is being alone, <laughs> is them not having a community and not, and they kind of start to go crazy. And they, they, they some, a lot of them will tap out because they just can't deal with being alone anymore. Human beings are meant, uh, it's like embedded in our nature to work as a community. And in so many aspects and ways and yeah I, I I'm resonating 100% with what you're saying I want to I would like to know more about Embigo how do you say it Embigo <laughs> Ambigo ambitions go because we help ambitions go places. ah awesome because yeah. I know you just started talking about it you started it in 2016 yeah so, so how did how did how did that all transpire was that off of um you going to Greece and then yeah okay, so, i gotta i gotta do this <laughs> yeah so i think i was kind of getting towards there and then we got sidetracked with the whole lesbos situation so yeah um, i came back from greece with my mind completely scrambled in a way i was actually had the most depressing christmas ever as i come back so you know what being there it was yes tragic and there's a lot of injustice going on but at the same time it's really uplifting because of that community you know because people are helping each other um and so, and everyone was equal as well, you know, not equal in the sense that, you know, of course the refugees were in a desperate situation and the volunteers got to go home and stay in a comfy bed, comf comfortable bed each night, but equal in the sense that people wanted to bound together. It didn't matter where you came from, everyone was working for the same purpose. But when you come home from that and you know that it's still going on and you feel helpless, that's really tough to deal with. So I came home and decided, right, that's it. I need to quit my career, even though I absolutely love it. And I need to do something using my skills. And I knew that I was not best placed to just stay out there in Greece and keep on 
helping by handing out clothes and whatnot. That's not the best use of my skills at all. So I wanted to do something at home that was going to strengthen community cohesion. So that's why I decided to use Ambigo. So these test events that I put on mm -hmm. with people sharing support for each other's goals and ideas and ambitions, I realized that was the perfect vehicle to strengthen community cohesion. So going forwards, um, I started partnering with different community groups, so different charities. So like I said, people who run organizations relating to addiction recovery, for instance, and people uh, who, so there's like a, a center that's called the BMECP Center, great people who run um, a facility for black and minority ethnic people in the city of Brighton, where we were established. Um, so I started on my own. I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. And I didn't really know where to start, but I'd put on those two test events on my own and I contacted a dozen people who'd come to those events and said, will you come around to my house, my new flat that I've just moved into, and I'll feed you risotto if you'll listen to ideas <laughs> about yeah. how I want to progress with this nonprofit and you yeah. can tell me your thoughts. So that's exactly what we did. So I just moved into this flat with three strangers. And the first thing that they were faced with was a further 12 strangers on their living room floor, sat in a circle, cross-legged, eating risotto. And I sat there with some A2 paper that I'd scribbled some drawings and diagrams on about what I wanted to do, what my thoughts were going forwards. And they gave me their feedback and it just flowed from there. You know, yeah. when an idea and you want to see it grow, just get it out to the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, like we were saying before, perhaps don't mention it, first of all, in the early stages to those closest to you, because they might be your biggest obstacle rather than your biggest supporters. Yeah. But if you have an idea and you're unsure of the next steps, get it out to the universe, the universe will respond. And that's what happened to me. So yeah, eventually we grew. But um, you know, one of my biggest regrets over the last few years is missing your wedding. Uh... <laughs> and the reason was, was because I was just starting out setting up this business and I'd spent all my savings on it and I just didn't have the money. And the problem I had was that I was prioritizing the social good ahead of yeah. being financially sustainable. And that's a big mistake that happens over and over and over again with people that try to start nonprofits and charities and things is that mm -hmm. they feel so focused and they're so excited about having the social impact that they want to have that they mm -hmm. don't make sure financially sustainable. And so it fizzles out. So that's why you hear all these statistics yeah. of is folding within a year or two years or whatever. Mm. So work-life balance. Well, it's it's more just not feeling ashamed to go after the money. Yeah. Because it's got to be about making sure you have a reliable, sustainable income so that it's empowering so you can do more good stuff. It's yeah. not having money but the minimum you could possibly get by on so that more of it can go to the charity. That's not actually how it works. You know, um, you need to, you need to be stable as an organization and as an individual to do your best work. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do that. We didn't do that. So eventually um, I had uh, some other directors come on board. So we had seven directors all together and I had, uh, I have had one other member of staff as well, working on it part-time. So it's a very small operation. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, for the last three and a half, four years or so, we've run 125 activities now across the south of England, and they've impacted around 3,000 people. Awesome. Um, yeah, we've been doing online events since the pandemic started because, of course, we've not been able to do in-person events. Yeah. So 
something really different and instead it's become basically like a we'd been running a weekly online tv show where people would join us on a platform called Streamyard. so it's 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 a bit like zoom but basically it's like you have your own tv show it's brilliant so if you want to turn the electric sanger into a tv show new Streamyard would be really great oh. so we used that and people came on and they'd share a goal they had or an ambition and then the people watching would comment underneath the video on Facebook with any mm-hmm. information, contacts, advice that they had. And there've been some really nice things that have come from it. So for example, there was a lady who came on who actually runs a small English teaching school for Russians, because she's mm-hmm. Russian herself, but she lives in the South of England. And she came on saying that she wanted to help a, a fledgling school in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a school with scant resources. And it was basically, a few buildings and that was it they didn't really have any materials so she said what she wanted to do was find volunteers who were native english speakers to give up some of their time to have conversations with the russian language students and those language students would pay a fee whatever they wanted to uh, pay as you feel and that fee would actually go to the school in uganda so she came on and did that and she immediately got six people step forward and say yeah i'll do that so all they did was volunteer their time, had a chat with one of the Russian students, and this school was able to pay two teachers and a cook to keep the school going. They've got a library now full of books. They were able to do repairs to the building, and they were able to get a new boat because the school's on a lake and the children were having to get across a lake, which is really dangerous. because We're talking about young kids. It's a primary school. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, I don't know, four to 11 years old, something like that. Um, and all of that because of this lady who, like I said, just got her message out to the universe. So mm-hmm. it's been really gratifying in some senses. But then, you know, as time has gone on, people, we're all pretty sick of doing stuff online. The yeah. old board course now. So it's had a an expiry date on it, really, these online yeah. events. Um, there's only so much people can tolerate. And I get that. So now we're just doing a social media campaign, which is uh, a bit more relaxed. But um, it's all mm-hmm. fun, you know to the times and you know new opportunities open up as well but yeah that's that's been the story of ambigo wow what was this platform called again the vid- the video um Dream yard. how do you how, you'll have to send that to me i'd like to i'd like to look into that more about that stream yard. so stream as in a stream of water and yard as in the distance streamyard.com ah, stream yard okay streamyard.com it's excellent platform it's really good value as well um you only have to pay like $20 a month and Mm -hmm. you can put your own logo on there and you have your ticker running across the bottom of the screen it's kind of got the feel of it as uh like a shopping channel Mm. it's kind of got that feel to it but it was interesting interesting and from where 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 does uh ambigo go sorry i'm i'm butchering pronouncing this one more time ambigo ambitious go go (laughs) ambigo ambigo how, where 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 from here? What's what's next? Where 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 what are your plans moving forward? Because of the situation, because we work to strengthen community cohesion, it's extremely hard to do that when you're not able to actually bring people together physically. Yeah. So at the moment, that's uh, that's not possible. So as mm-hmm. I say, we're just sticking with the social media campaign, which is focusing mm-hmm. on one individual at a time. So we mm-hmm. we, we keep we maintain connections with people from very diverse backgrounds across the area. and uh, just feature an individual and we ask them what is your goal why is it important to you 
and what help do you need to achieve it? Mm-hmm. So there, we're understanding as a viewer or as a reader of this post, we're understanding what the goal is. And then we're getting to the heart of why, which is revealing to us the human side of their ambition. So they might want to learn how to be a better gardener, which is mm. you know, may or may not be of interest to you. But when you find out the reason for it, which is because they want to be able to uh, put a garden together for an old people's home down the road, yeah. then you've got an investment in it, an emotional investment in it. You, you start to form those empathic bonds because you feel like it's something valuable that you want to support. And these yeah. ambitions of course, can be something really selfish. It can be something like, I want to um, get better at maths or I want to learn a new language or... Mm-hmm. You know, some people have said things like, I just want to learn how to be more self-confident. You know, yeah. that is that so, so it's almost it's like a, uh, uh, a self-help coaching people to achieve their goals almost. So someone comes to you like, hey, I want to do this. And then you're like, all right, well, we have, uh, well, where, where can we help? And you just plug in and give them kind of like a, a support system and encouragement system to, to push them and catapult them forward into it what what it is they want to do well what we provide is the platform so we as an organization we don't actually help anybody directly okay. that's that's not what we're set up to do because we're not qualified to you know yeah i have no idea how that person can start gardening better yeah but what i do have the power to do is to bring those people together in the community who i see, uh, I see. somebody in that community will know how to help that person with their garden mm-hmm. or they will know somebody who'll know and that's often what it is. People will talk to each other and say, yeah, uh, I know somebody called Bob who works at the open market down the road. Uh, contact him, mention my name, and he'll be able to give you the, the tips and the information you need. Wow. So there have been some collaborations that have stemmed from people coming along and they, they come along and almost absolutely everybody thinks, well, nobody's going to be able to help me with my thing because it's so specific. But they always do. There's always somebody in the room who either knows something themselves or knows somebody who will. And again, it's what helps give people that sense of value mm-hmm. about themselves as well. Because when you're able to help somebody else simply by just sharing your knowledge, it feels great. Yeah. And that's the other interesting things about the events as well, in that people come because they want to get help for their own ambition. Yeah. And that's fine. That's great. But once the event unfolds and they start learning about the goals and ideas and ambitions of everybody around them, they just get immersed and carried away with helping each other. Forget yeah. about themselves. And we actually have to say, we have to make an announcement most of the time and say, hey, don't forget to service your own ambition. Make sure that you're getting help from other people for what you came for. Because people just love helping each other. And it's so great to see because these are all strangers from very different backgrounds as well often. Um, and again, it's, it's something that I wish we could expand more and so what we've done is actually put together a legacy document as we call it it's a how-to guide so that we're uploading this to our websites by the time it's um this goes out it'll be on our website so anybody anywhere can pick up this how-to guide and run one of these events themselves because it Mm. can anywhere in the world all you need is a group of people and you can have a really exciting productive event as well and also focus on a particular topic so we've done events before for charities, for instance, that have been about loneliness mm-hmm. and ambitions people were coming up with were goals around how to help people who are suffering in isolation. Yeah. Kind of, so, yeah, there are, it's a really simple tool. All it is is paper and post-it notes. It's really wow. not complex. So anybody can do it anywhere. And I'd really encourage people to do so. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, you, know, you know, it's all of this is kind of making me think back to uh, my early days of engaging on social media. This is what you're describing was what I really foresaw social media becoming. Now it's become something very different, but I, I think it will become this. I think this like exactly what you're kind of describing is kind of where social media is heading. Um, so I guess to start when, when I first got on social media as a young, young teenager, um, I grew up in the Fort Worth area and music, the music scene in that area, I listened to a lot of like metal and hardcore punk type music and then some like very indie pop music. And it was very fascinating to get on MySpace back in those days because something was transpiring that I don't think had really transpired ever before. And it was very interesting to be a part of that because a lot of musicians were able to connect in ways they hadn't before. And they were able to meet bands from Houston, Texas and, be, and build these friendships and relationships and play shows and do little small Texas tours together. And it was one of the most really fascinating to be a part of and go to these concerts and watch these bands. And some of them got pretty big um, for, for a good while. Um, and it was and one day it was gone. It was so fascinating. It was like this. It was I, I directly want to say the link was between the switch from MySpace to Facebook because MySpace kind of disappeared into, into the shadows and Facebook took hold and Facebook didn't really offer the same musical platforms as, uh, as MySpace did, but it was- does, does MySpace still actually exist? It does, oddly enough, it does. And funny enough, I was having this same kind of conversation about the music scene back in the early 2000s in MySpace with a buddy and they had an incident, I wanna say it happened in 2013 or 2012 where, um, something with their servers or something to that matter. And they lost like not, like 50 to 90% of all their data and information. So a lot of those bands from back in those early 2000s lost everything. All that music that was uploaded is gone now. It's such a shame, but yeah, it still exists. But that sense of, of bringing communities together was so fast and, and I had no idea, I was a young teen. I was, I was just interested in being kind of a rebel and in the scene, but reflecting back, like I remember how amazing it was. And I'm hoping to get someone on from those days. I've reached out to a few music, musicians that were part of those bands and uh, were part of that, but it was exactly what you're describing about these, the, the social media platform had, MySpace had brought these musical communities together in ways that it hadn't been done before. And it was just such an incredible thing to see them supporting each other, them working together, playing shows together. And it's, it's, I definitely think this is, is, is nuance type stuff as, as the, as Rome falls in our, our modern day Rome falls, I think these kind of ideas and things are going to be more prominent in the way we, we do yeah. things. Yeah. Well, that's what makes Facebook and Twitter so enigmatic, because on the one hand, you get groups of interest, um, mm -hmm. about any kind of interest. So you could be into making wooden toys or you, it could be about a, a cultural commonality between you and you mm -hmm. can form groups. And that can provide such a useful support network, especially for isolated people who can't get out yeah. and about. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, in a more general sense, it's such a place of polarization. You know, mm -hmm. everybody has an opinion. Everyone's always on your back if you say something outlandish, you know. So it, it, the, the positive sides of it have got to be harnessed. Yeah. You know, they're there and they're there to stay anyway. You know, we can't wish them away, even if anybody wanted to. So 
Yeah, I, yeah, I'm no expert on social media, but um, <laughs> there is a lot of positivity, positivity in there. There's a lot of value to be taken from, of course, between people. Um, there are just a lot of manipulative forces out there as well, taking advantage of having access to so many people's data. So it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. Yeah. So you want? Do you want to tell me a little bit about um, your return back to Lesbos? I know you you've mentioned it um, a few times. Um, I think yeah. throughout, like what 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 the contrast was like? Because uh, there's it seems like there was some some time between when you first got involved to um, to going back, and then obviously 2019 going into 2020, big things have happened. Coronavirus, which we've talked about. So I went back um, in November last year. So it had been four years, almost to the day, since I went the previous time. And it was still ongoing, which itself is mind-blowing. You would have thought four years would be more than enough time to sort the whole issue out. But as I said before, it, it's deliberately bad, and it's kept being bad as a warning to other people not to come. But it doesn't work. So I went back in 2019, and... First of all, so there are two camps, two main camps on the island, and there's a, there's a smaller camp that's mainly for families. And I went there, and this time it was unbelievable in terms of the work that had been done by the NGOs. It mm -hmm. felt like such a community. There was things to do every day of the week for the people who were there. Um, children were being really well looked after. There were washing facilities, all this, and it was such a delight. I mean, it, it, the people are still living in living in what was called ISA boxes. So it's basically like a large shed. Mm -hmm. So it's still not acceptable by any means. However, it was a vast improvement on what was there before. So when I started there, that put me in a good mood, um, seeing the improvement of the place. Mm -hmm. But then I went to the other camp, Moria camp, the larger camp, which is the largest refugee camp in Europe. And I was confronted with 17,000 people, wow. rather than 1,000 as it was when I was there the previous time. And this is at a camp that had space for around 3,000 people. So we're talking oh, times over capacity and the conditions were absolutely wretched. The first thing that you notice when mm -hmm. you're approaching the place is how it looks. It's sprawling all over the hills. So it's on olive groves, basically. So there's an old military uh, set up there and that's that's kind of like the that was the starting point of the hub of the of the camp and there were so many people that they then started having to use the olive groves around it that belonged to olive farmers but they bought the land off the farmers so there was just tents after tents after tents all the way up this mind-bogglingly huge scale and then as you get a bit closer the next thing you notice is the stench the smell of toilets of uh, and not just the smell, but also you can see dubious liquid running down the hills. You've got, I can barely describe the conditions that people are living in or were living in until recently. So the tents were so packed together, there was barely any space to move between them. And these mostly were regular kind of summer tents that you'd get to go to a festival, say. Um, and then so there were those kinds of tents and also tents that were being supplied, which would sleep anywhere up to 15 people in one tent side by side. And these were people that you wouldn't necessarily even know. You were just being shoved into a tent and that was it. 
And uh, this wasn't temporary. You've got people who have been there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you've packed together 17,000 people in a tiny space, people who have been severely traumatized. Mm-hmm. And it makes it an ap- absolute hell for people to live in. And, and it, just, just real quick, Adam, and, uh, in these camps, uh, obviously, this is not ideal living situations at all. How are, how are tensions amongst the community in these camps? Are they, are they high? Is there crime? Like what, like it, it's, I know in desperate times, like, like people can get kind of desperate and greedy and very, um, these things can happen a lot of times. Did you, did you interface with anything like that or deal with any, any stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, really good question because when you've got 17,000 people, it actually rose to 20,000 after all. Oh, when you've got that many people there, um, of course there are, because by this point it wasn't just Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans it was also people from Yemen from Palestine mm-hmm. from uh, from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo a lot of people from there from Sudan mm-hmm. and so you've got all these different cultures you've got all these different languages so there's constant miscommunications and scant resources people you know have got so little food and so little choice so little hope so, of course, there was tensions, there were fights regularly. And the, one of the yeah. main things you notice about the camp when you're there is the children. There are so many children. Uh, it's something like 40% of the refugees are actually children. Um, and there was one day when I was at the camp last time around, and we were putting up tents alongside refugees, residents of the camp, they, we were together, we were working as one, working with refugees, not for, that's so important to make sure that there's a sense of empowerment and dignity rather than just handing things out to people because that's not what they want. Yeah. So anyway, we were, we were putting up these tents and then we had to stop because a fight broke out. And when a fight breaks out and there's so many people in such a small space, huge crowds gather mm-hmm. and it got quite violent as, as is not surprising at all given the circumstances and the conditions. And I turned around me and I saw these two young girls talking maybe four and seven years old, something like that. And they were clutching the hand of their mum so hard. And I could just see the fear in their eyes. And this is what they were having to deal with on a daily basis. And as this fight unfolded and we just stood back, hoping it would die down and eventually it did, I turned around because I heard this noise and it was both the girls just vomiting off the side of the hill. Ugh. There's no escape for these kids. Yeah. No to go. They are stuck there. And it is beyond inhumane. Yeah. What people are forced to live through. And, you know, there are people that have lost limbs who are forced to live in on hills where you can't even walk without falling over, let alone when you've got one leg missing. And the, the medical supplies were so scant um people were getting illnesses that you could shake off in a few days normally but there it was horrendous and then what happens covid comes along uh, yeah. that's the response of the authorities they decide to quarantine the whole camp so you've got these uh, at this point it was around thirteen thousand people because they sent some more to the mainland by that point so you've got 13,000 people who are already being forced to live in intolerable conditions, but now being told that you don't have any right to move out of the camp. 
I mean, you just go insane. You can't go anywhere. You're sleeping next to somebody you perhaps don't know who's up all night screaming because they're having recurrences of their traumas that they've been through. So you're getting no sleep. If you're a woman, a lot of the time, they weren't even going out at night. They were actually using nappies or diapers, as you know them, because they were too scared to go out once it got dark. And and then because it, they were too scared to go and put them in a bin, they were just throwing them outside. And this is the environment people are living in. People are walking in that stuff. And it's just a horror story, the whole thing. So then when, when the quarantine arrived, it finally happened. What we'd been saying, what everybody who'd been working and living in that situation had been saying for the past five years. At some point, this situation is going to explode. There's only yeah. so far you can push humans before they go beyond their limits. And that was it. A small group of people set fire to the entire camp. Gone. Wow. Entire camp gone. So what wow. happened? All these people who had pretty much nothing, a lot of them then lost some of their last belongings and they were just ditched on a stretch of road. They were a lot of the time not being given any water. They were going days without any fresh water. People had gone weeks without having running water, any access to running water. So they were having, luckily there's the sea there. So at least they're able to cool off in really hot temperatures there. Um, but just horrendous. And now they've set up a new camp, which is even worse than the first. And the whole thing because of the rain just gets flooded and people are being told they've got to sleep in this flood water. And this is happening in Europe. This, this isn't so-called developing world. Yeah. This is happening in, in Greece. And this is what it's come to. And still nothing's being done. And because there's so much going on in the world at the moment, attention has been diverted away. It's just not news anymore, even though the situation is worse in many ways than it was back in 2015 when our attention was on it. You'll remember the image of the baby Alan Kurdi, whose mm -hmm. face was down in the sand and that sent shockwaves across the world and an outpouring of emotional empathy as well. Mm -hmm. But that emotional empathy has dried up to a large extent. It's not in the media's interests as well to keep on publishing it um, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a whole different topic who owns the yeah. media and what their motives are, but it, it doesn't fall into their plans to promote empathy for these people because they'd rather, in many cases in the mainstream media, promote division. Yeah. And promote fear because fear sells newspapers. Fear makes people watch your news bulletin. Yeah. And they'd rather demonize these people rather than help them. So it's a really tragic situation and it's ongoing with no real solutions in sight right now. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's so easy to say from across the pond or out there like, Oh, well, they just need to, you know, pull themselves up and you know do X, Y, and Z, but it's, it's not, that's not the reality at all. And, and, and it's, it's crazy to think that there, there is people out here that think this way, that they just, they just need to figure these refugees just need to figure it out. And yeah. it's, it's, it's an impossible a problem, especially when you, like you were saying, alluding to the media, you know, not, not putting this information out there. And then it's, what, what do we do from here? Like, what is, what is if, if media is not going to help us, if media is not going to get the story out to get more people aware and involved, what, what, what do you think, what do you think needs to happen? It's like what we were saying before in terms of the cosmo local side of things mm -hmm. helping local people realize the power they have and it's already actually been demonstrated because there's also a very very small center for refugees on lesvos called pikpa mm -hmm. and it's an absolutely magical inspiring place it's for people with severe disabilities and with 
severe learning difficulties as well. And it was a real safe haven for them away from the horrible conditions of the main camps without that danger around and somewhere where they could feel safe. And that's the main thing. And the Greek government, because the new right wing Greek government came into power last year, they announced that they were going to close it down and all those extremely vulnerable people would be mm. thrown into the hell that the rest were living in, which would just be intolerable. And so what happened was local people and volunteers as well, they campaigned, they got out on the streets and they said, no, we are not having this. We're going to force you to change your minds. And they have at least temporarily. So they've announced that they're going to delay the closure of this center and that you know from the authorities side they're just hoping that the problem will disappear but it won't so people have power so if we keep on making a racket about this and making sure that people pay attention then opinions will be changed it's just extremely difficult right now because as i say there's coronavirus pandemic going on and yeah. elections and in the uk there's brexit uh, that's um, all of that um, that's almost a swear word, <laughs> I think. So that's the last time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so there's there's just so much bandwidth that people have, and people are tuning out because they don't want to be confronted with more tragedy and more pain because there's only so much that we can deal with at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really difficult one to answer. Where do we go from here? We've just got to keep on. You know, yeah. everybody just keep on trying to raise awareness about it, and um, and it's going to take an entire system change, you know, yeah. at a level where you can make an impact. But the refugee camps, these insufferable refugee camps in Greece, are not going to go away until there's huge political change, mm-hmm. uh, complete upheaval of the political system. Um, so there's there's different levels to look at trying to find solutions. But until there's not the whole geopolitical aspect to it all, then it's not going to go away, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we need to give up hope. We've still got to keep on going. We've still got to make sure that those most vulnerable are being supported and being given a voice, um, no matter how hard it gets. Yeah. And I, I think as civilization grows too, like we become more connected in so many ways and, and, and just outside of global warming, like what happens in China uh, and how they distribute fossil fuels and carbon emissions and stuff like that, that has a, that has an impact over here in the U S as it does in Europe and as it does in South Africa. I mean, what, like I I had a, a, this is kind of a going off topic just slightly, but I I had a, a guy, he on the show, he's a research technologist and he works along physicists. And I asked him the question, we're talking about quantum science and he more, more or less said, um, you know, we're starting to find out and believe that we're more than on the quantum level, we're more than just our physical bodies and our, what we do matters, like, and, 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 and it impacts everything around us. And as in the same way, you know, what, what we do as a country from so many different parts of the spectrum, I think starts, it's starting to come to a head that I think a lot of people are starting to realize, like, what we do matters more or less like what how we treat our neighbors matters how we treat refugees matters how you know what i do for and that's and this is like getting into like the whole purpose what is my life's purpose what i want to do like what i choose to do to interface with the rest of the world as a career matters and i think i think we're coming to a head like i said where we're starting to 
become that community sense, it's starting to come back. Yeah. What, do, what, do, what do you think? Well, humanity is coming full circle in a way, because I know you've mentioned to me before that you've been exploring Buddhism and learnings from that. And mm-hmm. they were saying all along, you know, this kind of message. Yeah. Now, yeah. now you heard it as well in scientific language from that perspective. Um, some people see it as a spiritual thing. Some people see it as, as yeah, you know, quantum science. Uh, from yeah. that kind of, but it all comes back to the same thing that we are more than just ourselves, and our impact is more than just in our own immediate circle. Yeah. Um, I really do believe that as well. It it sets vibrations, you know. And, and just to bring it back to a personal example, when I came back from Greece the first time. I was really despondent and feeling helpless. But when people asked me to do talks about my experiences there and I'd go and do them, it was in the aftermath of those talks that I realized how important they were because I was getting contacted by people who were saying, because of your talk, I decided to go out and volunteer in a refugee wow. camp. And so, did my, awesome. so did my other friends. Mm-hmm. And people decided to, if they had money, people were deciding to give money to mm-hmm. grassroots organizations on the ground. So your impact goes way beyond what you think it does and if you it's like that old adage if you smile at somebody in the street it could make their day and if it makes their day that transforms how they behave around other people as well so our behaviors and our actions they're constantly rippling far and wide and Mm -hmm. um, I agree I really feel like that's an awakening that we're having now as a global society too Mm -hmm. Um, it's long overdue um, Mm -hmm. but and all of these crises that have happened and are going to continue happening at an increasing rate they're necessary in one sense as in it's what has been needed for us to learn these lessons yes yes it felt like this needed to be a global breakdown for us to actually realize oh hold on the way we've been living is unsustainable in every single possible way almost Um, and that's how we change we we don't tend to change as human beings until we're faced with crisis you know Mm-hmm. Um, and these crises are now coming. It's just a matter of can we learn the lessons and put those lessons into meaningful action quick enough to protect ourselves, our humanity and the planet um, as much as we possibly can from this point. Um, yes. And, you know, the fact that I know I, I don't want to get into party politics, but Joe <laughs> Biden said um, on, in an interview, uh, was it 60 Minutes? Who, who knows? Who cares? But he said in an interview that his top priority is climate change mm-hmm. and no presidential candidate of any color mm-hmm. conceivably said that in the past mm-hmm. and then we have somebody who's 77 is he now yeah. who is recognizing that that is the one most important issue moving forwards because it affects the whole world in every single possible way so it feels like there's a there's a real shift happening and yeah. uh, it's and I- it's a, in many ways it's just one it's just a question of whether it will come soon enough in order to um, to really protect what is most dear to us the things that we currently take for granted like air like water yeah. those food they're all going to be in severe shortage if mm-hmm. we're not careful very soon yeah and i think i think also just since we're on this topic of global warming and climate change i think a lot of the kickback from the right when it comes to joe biden's approach to climate change and the the democratic side of approach to climate change is you have these large communities within the U.S., their whole economy and their their village, towns, everything is based off of the oil industry. And it's been like that for generations and generations. 
And when the, the left comes in and says, hey, we're going to get rid of, you know, all the oil industry, it's, it sends a message like, oh, you're going to ruin my hometown where I grew up, where I've watched my grandkids grow up, my kids grow up. And, and it, there's like this fear of those ramifications on the economic side. And there's a disconnect of that these, these, this industry is destroying the world. And if we keep going down this route, then it's going, there will be no economy. And where do we go from there? It's, there has to be some kind of transition to still help these communities as we pull away from carbon emissions and in a, an entire industry and, and not let these communities fall apart. And I think that's one thing that the, the Democrats and left really struggle with is, is ensuring these communities like saying, hey, look, we're gonna come up with a plan, but uh, we have to come up with a plan. It's no, no more of, of waiting around and you know playing this back and forth game of economics. It's, we need to come up with a plan that will sustain your community and get you guys on a path to where you have other jobs and your, your community still thrives, but it can no longer be in this area of expertise specifically. Yeah. And so that's, that's where it comes back to empathy. It yeah. comes back to making sure that people's own stories are heard and understood and fears. Yes. Because I don't think there's anybody in their right mind who would, who would seriously think that having a cleaner, having cleaner air to breathe and cleaner water to drink is a bad thing that they don't want. That's obviously not the fear that they have. The fear that they have is that their history is going to be ripped up uh, and their way of living is going to be disrupted in a way that they don't like. Um, and people's livelihoods will go down the pan. They're all really legitimate fears. Yeah, a lot of what happens is demonization because of this polarization. Yeah. Just painting bad people, crazy people, lunatics who don't deserve to have their viewpoints considered when it, it needs to be the complete opposite. And because they don't feel like they are being heard a lot of the time, they don't trust that their fears and, and their very legitimate worries are going to be taken into account, then there's a breakdown of trust, you know, between them and whoever else is the opposite party. So, you know, dialogue is essential and and the answers are there, you know, it's all possible. Um, and it has to be done in terms of, moving away from fossil fuels because well for a start they will run out at one point but even yeah. more to completely eliminate our carbon emissions i mean there are no two ways about it yeah um so there are definitely ways to assuage the fears of those who will be directly affected by it um there are people uh, who i who are very very close to me who work in the oil industry who are going to be affected by divesting away from fossil fuels and they have very legitimate concerns about their their futures and their finances and all of those kinds of things and so if you can implement an alternative that maintains what's important to them which is the security for their families then that's a great start you know yeah uh, you have to be assured from the outset that the things that they hold dear the most aren't going to be adversely affected um, yeah. and I, i'm not a climate activist i'm not a a climate expert or anything like that but i do believe that there are definite ways forwards for that it just takes that communication that's yeah. the most important thing about the whole issue so before before i go into this next topic how, how are we doing on time because i want to I, I want i know we've been going for a minute now and i'm glad we actually got this working because we're having some connection issues and it seems to be going great now but i, yeah. I, I definitely 
Yeah, I How think somebody doing? just plugged a wire into the right slot because the internet here seems to be working fine for once. So <laughs> let, let, let's plow on. Okay. Um, so let's go into um, your PPP initiative. Uh -huh, yeah. Let's, let's talk, talk talk a little bit about that. And I'm a, I'm a, did and this is just an assumption. Did this come from watching what happened in uh, Greece? Like, was this like, or was it, or at least a little bit um, of the influence watching how that kind of unfolded? I, su I suppose so, in a an indirect way, in that it gave me greater belief that I could start something that would have a meaningful impact. But the initial spark for the PPE project that. Um, I co-founded was because I heard an interview on the radio with a nurse who was working on a COVID ward at a hospital uh, somewhere in the south of England and she was explaining how she didn't have adequate PPE and mm. personal equipment so mm -hmm. she was having COVID patients cough in her face and, uh. she, and the resources just weren't there to protect her and this was outrageous yeah. you know because the, the resources were out there the money could have been there but the government let everybody down so this again was about cosmo local thinking so instead of just complaining to the government and saying why aren't you doing this and just complaining to the council and whoever yeah. else actually taking matters into our own hands and saying well the resources are out there in the community let's use those resources so what we created me and a mate was something called ppemaker.net which is still online and it's a map tool so it's where people who need ppe whether they're on the front lines, whether they're doctors or nurses or not, if you need PPE because you're interacting with other people who may be contagious or may have the virus, then then you need protecting. So if you need protecting, you can go on that map and say, I need masks or I need gowns or whatever it might be. And you can also plot yourself on the map if you have those items or if you can make those items. So basically, it's a platform for people to come together who can support each other to get PPE to where it was needed the most. So it started off with just me and my mate. And then again, like I've said, we all need to do if we've got a new idea, get it out to the universe and it will respond. And we grew a team of 13 we had people in Thailand, people in Tennessee, actually, in Nashville, um, had somebody in France and then other people in the UK as well all coming together using their expertise whether that was in marketing or in partnerships or in web development um all sorts of areas all coming together to get this map tool online and so it's still being used today there's still people who are plotting themselves on the map what we can't track without too much interference is actually how many people are connecting because all it is is people put their email addresses down and they connect with each other away yeah. from our away from our mapping tool so we don't actually find out the benefit it's having um, but we do know that some people have connected and shared resources and you know made masks for each other and that kind of thing to help protect each other so um it's just one project in a million really in terms of there are hundreds of thousands of projects i think around the world that have sprouted up at a grassroots level to help people in many different ways and ours was just another one of those really to add to the mix mm. yeah i know i know this pp issue that the PPE yeah sorry um, across the U.S. was was really big and it's become it's another thing that's become politicized and um, you know I, I'm I go back and forth uh, with how I think about this with with the mask and I don't want to say I'm an anti-masker that's I definitely don't want to allude to that I definitely think you know it, especially okay so I'll say this with businesses if a business is 
business says like, hey, if you wanna come in, then you have to wear a mask. I think you should respect that. Um, I think they have every right to do that. And if, if you don't wanna do that, then go take your business elsewhere. And, uh, but I don't wanna bring it more into the economics of, of things, but I just, uh, or business things, but I just, I hate how it's become a political issue. And it seems to be like a trend. I see it a lot in the US where we don't let the people that it's their specific like career or uh, like the scientist, I guess you'd say, like do their job. We, we don't let the experts, there we go. We don't let the experts dictate our opinion and somehow these things become politicized. And I hate that this keeps coming back to politics because um, it's the frontline workers, you know, I, I remember in the beginnings of all this, there was a lot of protest or anguish and frustration from frontline workers that they didn't have masks to, and they, and you know, it's, it's a crazy thing to think that we couldn't even support them in the early beginnings here in the States with, with this issue. And if without them, then what do we have? <laughs> it's, it's an insane thing. So it's, it's very, I, I at least can respect the importance of it, you know, um, regardless of what your beliefs are, mask, I, I, I just, I don't understand um, enough about it, uh, more or less. And like I said, I'm not an anti-masker by any means, but frontline workers, for sure, it was very disgusting to see that, that, uh, that we couldn't get them what they needed. Well, what we've seen, I feel, is a complete revealing of, well, what we've seen is the blatant failure of individualism mm -hmm. there's a very famous quote by margaret thatcher the british prime minister in the 80s mm -hmm. and early 90s. Uh, she said there is no such thing as society mm -hmm. and that really stood out as being at the core of her philosophy for her governing years and what she was alluding to was she wanted everybody to feel independent everyone to feel yeah. individual and that has been laid bare because now you have people who don't see themselves as something as part of something greater they mm -hmm. don't feel part of a community they don't feel responsible to other people mm -hmm. and so you get people going it's my right not to wear a mask and of course that's yeah. true in yeah. circumstances, but it's just that philosophical question there is no actual right or wrong you know i catch myself thinking this is completely wrong but there isn't actually right or wrong people who have that belief it's actually a legitimate belief and they should be allowed to have it except i personally really disagree with it in terms of we do need to look out for each other because even if i'm not worried about getting the virus or i don't think it will affect my health too much if i get it and then asymptomatically pass it on to somebody else who may have Ex yeah exactly that is not fair in my yeah, view exactly so where you've seen the virus contained really well um, has mostly been in countries where there's a greater sense of um, community, a greater sense of being part of a greater organism. So yeah. I'm thinking, of, I mean, China, you know, they were extremely draconian in their measures to control the virus. But then recently they had a huge phone party in Wuhan, which is the yeah. place where the virus originated. And that shows you, you know, how they've managed to conquer it. Places like Taiwan um, as well uh, and South Korea. Have South Korea. Yeah, I was going to say South Korea is very impressive. And I, mm -hmm. and, and you're mentioning that a lot of the Eastern countries of our world, and I think it's, I think this is where it comes down to not because not, South Korea and Japan, they're, they're 
fairly westernized with democracy and whatnot, but it seems to be more of like a lot of Western companies or companies, countries with um, the idea of like the self-individual freedom, right? And they, they're like, oh, well, it's my right to, you know, be able to not wear a mask and do what I want. And in these Eastern countries though, like, cause when I lived in South Korea, masks are a very common thing. You can pick them up along, alongside the street, uh, anywhere you go. And it's, it's a very common thing. They've been wearing masks for years now. And I think what, I think maybe, and I'm just speculating here, maybe it was such a shock to a lot of Western, the Western world that doesn't, ha hasn't worn these masks as, as frequently as some of our Eastern brothers and sisters. Um, it, it just, it was off-putting. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. I think, I, I feel like it was, is something something to do with that because it wasn't much of a struggle. People in South Korea have been wearing masks for for probably yeah. decades now. And then but you take it, um, you take Mexico where I am now, and you, you don't get that political division. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere, like you do in the UK, like you do in the US. Um, yeah. Here, generally, I, I've not heard a single person say, "I don't think we should be wearing masks." Yeah. or anything like that, or I don't want to wear a mask. You don't hear that. There are some people who don't wear them, but mm -hmm. they, they're not making a song and dance about it. Generally, yeah. people wear masks when they're around other people. Because yeah. again, I mean, I'm in a very rural part of Mexico. I'm not in Mexico City, which mm -hmm. is a big province, and, you know, other large cities. But So it might well be different there. But my experience in these more rural parts, and I've spent time in the Tabasco region as well, which is near the Guatemala border, mm -hmm. um, is that people take it very seriously, and people believe it. And people want to look out for each other as well. And yeah. but they're not in this tradition of wearing masks. So I think it really does come down to whether you feel like you're part of a community or not. And if you feel like your sense of individualism is greater than your sense of community, then that's the tipping point that means that people aren't going to be protecting each other. Mm -hmm. So the other reason why people take it so seriously here is that the virus has been horrendous. You know, it's the fourth largest death toll in the world in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because a lot of people are so on such low incomes that they can't afford to stop them. Like they can't work any differently. So yeah. people travel about in these tiny little vans with 20 people packed into a 12 seater van, say, and of course the virus is going to spread in those kinds of conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, when, when we say we're all in this together in many ways, we're not at all. The richest are still going to be the most easily protected because they can protect themselves with, yeah, the gear and isolating themselves and what they can bunker Where, down. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the poorest have no choice but to continue to mix with people that may well give them the virus and inevitably and invariably they do. Yeah. Um, they, you know, it's, there's not a person in Mexico, I think, who doesn't know somebody who's died from COVID. Yeah. And I know that's the case with the people. I'm here living with my boyfriend and, you know, sadly it's hit his family. So that's the other reason why people take it seriously because they know first or second hand. Yeah. They're they're connected in a in a in a very meaning uh, a very tangible way. It's 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 very true to them. They they have it. Someone like you said, they're connected to. And I think I think you know back to kind of what we've been talking about. Like you know, take COVID away, we are more connected in ways than I think on the scientific sense than. I, I mean, at least that I can wrap my mind around, right? So um, like the air we breathe, there's there's chemicals and stuff coming off of our body constantly, you know, um, from tuberculosis was the big thing in Korea uh, outside of the pollution. 
is one of the reasons people wear masks. And, you know, it's, it's, there's, we're, we, we are connected in so many other ways outside of COVID. It just, that's, that's why I kind of, I don't know, like it, I didn't have a problem wearing it in Korea. So it hasn't really been an issue for me here. And it felt like it's a right issue. Like I know, I guess to some scientific sense, and I'm not the smartest person by any means, but I know that I am interfacing with those around me in more ways than just physically physical touch, if that makes any sense at all. And um, I don't, and I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in coronavirus. And I don't think there's many people you'll find that are, are experts yet, because this is such a new thing. We're, we're all, we're still learning new things about this. So I think, you know, there's no, I take no issue with being precautious and not for my own selfish reasons, but because I have some limited understanding that I interface with everyone around me in more ways than I can even comprehend or understand, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think of places like Botswana, you know, just to go completely on the other side of the planet. Botswana has suffered from really dreadful droughts in recent times and Zambia as well. And uh, I remember hearing an interview with a woman there who you know, they've been malnourished because they've just not been able to grow the crops. The crops keep on failing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she was asked about the more broader question around what are your feelings around the future? Mm-hmm. And she said, I fear less for myself than I do for those in the Western world. Wow. Because we'll be able to adapt. Mm-hmm. Because our tradition and our, our culture is that we're aware that we affect other people. Yeah. And so we together we communicate with each other and we share resources. Whereas in the Western world, that's not the instinct. Mm-hmm. The instinct is protectionism mm-hmm. and, and looking out for number one. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a profound thing for her to say, given her situation, given what she was going through, because she's in the worst of it already. Um, and yet she could see the value of being aware of, like you say, of how we all impact each other. How we, how we affect each other in ways that aren't even visible. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's, there's so many great things about Western civilization and like, and how it's come along, but it, there does seem to be this disconnect of community that the, that it, it, there seems to be something lacking there. And it does seem that like, I know we've, we've kind of gone in circles around this. It seems like we are coming back to that through different technologies and in many different ways. And a lot of the world, other parts of the world are connected in this, this community, this hive mind or whatever you want to call it. Hive mind's a horrible way to describe it, but they're more, um, they're more connected with each other because they share their, their food. They, they, you have someone that grows tomatoes and the neighbor grows, uh, has cows for milk and they trade and they're more embedded with one another in ways that as we've progressed so much, it's, it seems the type of events that have to take place for us to connect tend to be the tragic ones, if that makes sense. It takes a pandemic, it takes a war, it takes stuff like this for things to finally hit home. If that, it, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it hooks back to what I was saying before about how people don't tend to change in dramatic fundamental ways until a crisis is upon them. Yes. Uh, it, the thing is, people, there's, there's always this sense of when we get back to normal, you know? Yeah. And there is not going to be 
ever again a normal like we've known it before it's just mm -hmm. not going to happen because what's happening now i mean this is just the start because next there's going to be the economic hit that yeah. really businesses will go under people will lose their livelihoods and then what if mm -hmm. people don't have money then what do we do then we need that kind of collaboration you were just talking about. yeah people are going to be sharing more and so then it will spread you know that's the positive side of it at least you know people will start to realize that there's a new way of existing there's a new ontology that we can have that will actually leave us believing that the best way to go about things is by communicating with each other despite apparent divisions and apparent differences and collaborating and sharing and it's this reciprocity theory is again where it feels good to give mm -hmm. it more often uses that same group but things will come see my internet connections unstable again <laughs> yeah we've, we've gone a long way without any glitches so I'm pretty yeah happy. yeah i think i think we I, I it just went out for a second but i think i got you back can you hear me fine yeah absolutely Okay, you know, going forwards in this next decade, it's going to be that the world in 2030 will be unrecognizable from what it yeah. is now. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The Arctic may well soon be gone in the summer, as in no ice at all. And we think, well, too bad for the polar bears. But that is going to have a huge impact on, on ecosystems around the world mm -hmm. and biodiversity. And mm -hmm. what that means coming down to the actual matter of how it affects our lives, it means that we're not going to have the food on the table we want. We're not mm -hmm. going to be able to go to the supermarket and be able to choose from 100 different products for, you know, the same item. And if we want some cocoa powder, we're not going to be able to choose from all those different brands. Um, we're going to be down to the more basics, and that's going to cause a lot of upheaval, a lot of pain, and a lot of tension, and a lot of violence even. It's inevitable. But out the other side of it, we will learn so much and we'll learn a new, better way of being. So yeah. this is something that's only coming to me recently because I've been petrified, to be honest with you, with what's to come. Mm -hmm. uh, because being able to be aware of it uh, and feeling powerless is a hopeless situation to be in. But I've come to realise that it's completely necessary and it was com completely inevitable. Yeah. What's happened has happened and where we're at now it, it was always going to be and it's just about how we re react going forwards and i think people will start to realize a better more natural way of being you know we'll go back to our roots as human beings you know not just uh not just using new technologies and things like that but actually going to the very basics of getting familiar with the land again yeah working with your hands yeah, I don't know anything about growing crops and stuff, but I know I need to get knowing. I need yeah. to start learning how to do those kinds of things because we're going to depend on it. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting. We're going to learn so much more about, yeah. us, about each other. Um, it's just a huge shame. It's going to take a lot of tragedy and pain mm -hmm. before we get to that point. But, you know, um, nobody can really look in their crystal ball and have any certainty to say what the future is going to look like. But there are lots of different possible futures. But I really do think there's going to be a balance of pain and despair and also new harmony forming from people 
starting to collaborate more and starting to realize that we're all in the same boat in this journey of life together. Yeah, absolutely. There's an old Chinese story and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but the, the end result is there's no good experiences. There's no bad experiences. There's only learning experiences. Yeah. Sounds good to me. It's, it's something like that. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's, it's, it, we, we get so caught up in like, I, I hate that we keep going back to politics and I'm not going to take it there, <laughs> but we get so caught up in the politics, right? We get so caught up in all these things that we think are so trivial and realistically it's, it's just the, the learning experience that we're going through. We're just really processing all of it. And um, when you really embody, I guess, that kind of philosophy, that's when, that's when the work begins and, you know, change happens and it's, you don't, you don't have to put these labels on things of left or right, good or bad. It's, it just is what it is. And we're, I, I really think I'm an optimist and I, I really think we're, we're about to see just an incredible world that I don't think anybody could have thought, thought would be just a few years ago, uh, starting to take place here very, very soon. Do you remember that episode of the Simpsons with the two aliens that come yeah. and the president Kangan Kodos? It's, it's a bit like that when we get caught up with the presidential election and all of those kinds of things that like we have done for many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. It is all actually on the whole, or at least previously has been irrelevant because it's the system that is the issue. It's this top-down system that we're all that we're all brainwashed to believe that we need to follow. When yeah. actually, as we found out to our huge cost in recent years, it's not actually to our benefit, any mm-hmm. of it. Uh, and I'm not trying to trivialize the current US election because there is a huge difference between the two candidates. It's not like previous times where there was actually only a paper thin difference between the two parties mm-hmm. on most issues. Now it's really stark, so it is different now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I really think that um, politics uh, a lot of the time isn't the real issue. Yeah. And things are changing. Yep. It's got to be embraced. Yep. Absolutely. Well, um, let's uh, let's go. In. I, I got one more thing, and then I'm going to ask you a few questions, and we can wrap this up if you're if you're good with that. And I think the connection should should sustain us for one more topic. Um, so, the people and planet conversation. You want to tell us a little bit about that and what you're what yeah. you're doing with that? Yeah. So, um, one I've been thinking um, about, you know, the state of the world and where my skills lie within that. I've really wanted to help forge conversations between people and engage people in conversations that help people and planet in some way. Mm-hmm. So especially with the pandemic realizing, helping people realize that we don't need to be traveling across the world to have a, an in-person event with each other. Mm-hmm. But instead we can engage online. So you've probably seen as much as I have the endless number of conferences and summits going on at the moment yeah. online. Um, so there are some really great conversations to be had. And so I'm now setting myself up as a person who moderates and facilitates those conversations. So people and planet conversations is something that I've just started. So I've just got a new website, which is online event moderator.com. And so I want to be having those conversations with people in different places around the world about all kinds of topics 
that are focused on tackling issues to help people and planet. So for example, I mentioned earlier about this summit that I did over the last weekend, which was called Negotiating the New Normal. And I was speaking to people about children in armed conflict and new ways of doing democracy, um, about youth and women in politics, um, about AI ethics as well, you know, all these different topics, all really important in their own right. And uh, I really love using my broadcasting background to actually engage people in those conversations and draw out the gold they have to share so yeah. that we can learn and we can all start collaborating for a, a fairer and healthier future for people and planet. So mm -hmm. that's that's one of my next directions that I'm going in now. So if you or anybody you know knows of anybody putting on events in that regard, then I'd love to be put in touch with them. Um, yeah. And I'm also about to embark on the journey of ghostwriting a book for the first time. For yeah. Somebody. Yeah, you were saying something about that in the uh, the yeah. family group chat or uh, conference video thing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the family Zoom call. So yeah, so yeah, there we go. The chap who actually came to one of our events, one of our non nonprofits events, Ambigos events, and he said that he's uh, had an amazing journey in life, recovering from addiction, and now he works people works with young women actually mainly, who harm themselves and they can't work out why and he spends 12 hours a day with just one individual often as his job making helping them to understand what it is they're feeling and helping them to express those feelings in ways other than self-harm and he's got such an incredible story and he's an amazing character that he wants to be able to put his journey into writing so it can help other people especially the young women that he works with um, but he doesn't know how to do the writing part. He doesn't know how to structure mm -hmm. it and he doesn't have the time. So mm -hmm. his goal that he came to one of our events with was to find a ghostwriter. And he was describing the kind of person he wanted, which was somebody who had worked in journalism in the past and that kind of things. And because he'd reached out to professional ghostwriters and they were demanding 35,000 to 40,000 US dollars. Whoa. For one book. And of course, no regular person has that money to hand. So, yeah. uh, Instead, uh, I've said, well, actually, I would find that really interesting. I've done a lot of writing in the past professionally and also when I was in Lesvos, actually, I did a lot of uh, blog post writing, which engaged an awful lot of people from around the world, complete strangers. And uh, I raised four and a half thousand pounds, so about six thousand, six and a half thousand US dollars in just a couple of weeks wow. because people were engaged with what I was writing about the experiences of the people uh, on the ground in Lesvos. So I want to put that writing skill to good use again. And mm -hmm. this, this is one way to do it. So that's a new career strand that I'm embarking on as well. Um, as I, I start to live this new life in Mexico as well at, at the moment anyway. So yeah, it's all changed and all good. And, and you connected to this, this ghost, uh, to do the ghostwriter stuff um, through the people and planet conversation. No, that was, was, that, that was that actually, it came through Ambigo, as I say. So um, it fits under the same umbrella because it's about me having conversations with okay. him yeah. about how we can improve the lives of people who are suffering from complex trauma. That's basically going to be the topic of the book because okay. trauma is still something that I'm learning about. But when people say you're suffering from addiction or you're self-harming and it's because of trauma you've had in the past, a lot of the time people... Well, sometimes people are like, yes, obviously I had a major trauma in my life and that's contributed to where I am. 
but often people don't actually identify that they have suffered from trauma which manifests itself in different ways it can be addiction it can be self-harm or it can be depression it can be anxiety it can be a whole number of things um and so this book is going to be about helping people in a very personable and human way identify that they themselves may have um suffered complex trauma which has led to how they are now and once you know the cause you can start to you can start to resolve the issue um so through his book that's what he wants to achieve so um we're just starting to work together now to see what we can come up with and then there's a whole new journey about trying to get it published and all of that as well so a lot of learning for me personally as well looking forward to it that's awesome that's really really awesome yeah um with the with the people and planet conversation stuff, I really think there is a longing and um, for these type of conversations uh, to start taking place amongst the masses. And I'm, I mean, this is just an, this is an opinion. I'm not speaking for everyone. I just I I just get the feeling that um, this is something big, and it's really awesome that you're doing that. It's quite incredible. Is it becoming overwhelming at all having to juggle all this stuff, or is it more exciting uh less so you know i actually spoke to somebody at the summit last week who was juggling 11 different organizations at once Whoa. 11 organizations and you know me i'm bold and there's a reason i'm bold tearing <laughs> my hair out so long because just running one organization one non-profit has been so challenging um but right now i've got i've got to a, a different place where i'm taking a lot because the one of the reasons it was so challenging running that nonprofit was um because i was doing a lot of tasks that are not in my field of genius as i like to call it it's not my term but um so i was organizing events and that's not actually something i like doing but i was doing oh. it and so when you're doing something outside of your field of genius you, you don't feel you're particularly good at it it doesn't feel very fulfilling yeah um, so i find somebody else who can help with that yeah. um which and do something else so i'm branching out now into these different areas so yeah trying to focus on my own strengths and when you do that it makes it a pleasure to do the work yeah so, that's the way to go forwards i think and, and it's a very privileged position to be in to be able to do work that you find pleasurable because obviously not everybody has access to it so yeah i recognize that and know how lucky i am that's awesome that's really awesome yeah so um i think I think I'm going to start wrapping it up. I got a, I got a question for you and then, um, or a couple more questions and then, um, sure. I'll give you the, the floor if you want to say anything else. So my first, first question is, um, I'm a, I, I pose this to almost, uh, everybody. Sometimes I forget, but, uh, I'm a magic genie and you can, you have three wishes. Um, you can wish for anything you want. It can be outrageous. It can be silly. It could be, I just, I want a glass of water right now. Does it, it doesn't have to be anything particular. It can be selfish. It can be selfless. Anything goes. You just can't ask for more wishes. What are yours? Um, I would ask for a return to a healthy planet, but there's not much point if we don't change humans mm. because then the same mistakes will be made. So, what I'd say is empathy. My wish, Mr. Magic Genie, and I always suspect <laughs> about you, is <laughs> I would want people to empathically connect with each other. 
to build those emotional and cognitive connections with each other. So to understand wow. how others feel and to put that effort into understanding their perspective as well. I was speaking to somebody, again, I hop back to this event last week. It was incredible. There was, um, I, I was speaking to somebody from India and there was a, a role play that had played out on the screen and there was lots of tension and arguments in this role play and there were some quite obnoxious characters involved. And the question to her was, who angered or irked you the most? And she said, I didn't get angered or irked by any of them. Oh. And when we dug underneath that, she explained that the reason was, was because she'd gone through such a transformative experience in her own life, which was that she had fallen in love with somebody in India who was from a different caste to her, from a lower caste. Uh -huh. And that angered her family and especially her dad so much that he had threatened to commit honor suicide. Wow. Because the person that she had fallen in love with and wanted to marry was from a lower caste, her dad was prepared to kill himself in the name of honor. Wow. And what I don't know is how the relationship has developed from that point on, but what she did say was that she has lived with her father for the last four years and communication is completely broken down. And it's not because she's not willing, it's because he's not willing. And she says that after a lot of mourning for her dad, which is a word she used, even though he's still alive, she's come to the point now where she's able to understand why he has that strong, passionately held view. And she understands that it's not just a sense of pure evil within him. He is the result of his genes. He's the result of his conditioning. He's the mm. result a culture and of a system a nationwide yeah. and wow. so able to recognize because she's empathically connected on an emotional level and on a cognitive level so can you imagine that somebody so close to you somebody you love so much as as much as your own father mm -hmm. has done that to you yet you can still find a way to not feel anger towards them yeah that's yeah, not that's, to say anger is a negative emotion. I think anger is a very powerful and can be a very positive emotion. And mm -hmm. change often comes about because we harness our anger. And I really encourage that. But when it becomes self-destructive, then it's not a good emotion to have. It needs to be channeled into something else. So I was so astonished by her words, but I completely understand it. And if we can all if we can all replicate that in our own lives, when we think of the trauma that we have in our own lives or the disagreements we have with those around us or those that we love the most, if we can really try hard to cognitively and emotionally connect with them to understand why they're doing or saying what they're saying, then we can really understand each other more and be more constructive with our actions and our behaviours. And there can be healing instead of division. And that benefits in all aspects of life. So that's a long-winded long -winded answer to say my one wish would be for yeah. people to empathically connect with others. That's, that's incredible. I, uh, I'm feeling it. That's, that is, that is really, um, that's a very insane story. Like, man, I can't, I can't even like, I almost can't even wrap my mind around yeah. it. It's, it's. And, and she was so peaceful with it as yeah. well. You know, she she's therefore not been carrying that upset with her and letting that because like you said, you know, our, our vibrations almost affect everybody else. And so if she had just resolutely decided that 
who wasn't going to make those empathic connections. It's not admitting that he was right at all. I don't want to. I don't want people to perceive that this is about giving up and letting somebody else win. Absolutely not. She's yeah. absolutely the fact that she knows that there was nothing wrong with her relationship to this man, mm-hmm. but at the same time, she wasn't able. She was never going to be able to change her dad's mind without connecting with him first and maybe he never will change his mind but at least she's been able to been able to unhook herself from the hatred that had built up inside her mm-hmm. and there's a lot of power in learning about that i think because now she's able to move on and do good things with, with her life and to treat others with kindness as a result rather than being embittered by the anger that had arisen so if we think about our own lives if we think about somebody who's dear to us somebody who we feel might have betrayed us or somebody who's angered us, somebody we have a difference of opinion with. Yeah. Just try to connect, even if it's just one way, even if you're not engaged, able to engage in a dialogue with them, even if you're just able to give yourself the permission to try and understand what has led them to come to their opinion, you might learn new things about them that might change your own opinions. Yeah. Or, it might just help you understand the other person in a better way. Yeah. Um, and if you can bring yourself to have those really deep, honest conversations, it could be transformative. It might not go so well, but mm-hmm. it might be worth giving it a try. It might be the time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's very easy to get trapped in the echo chambers and the bubbles of our own beliefs, especially when we grow up in families that have very similar beliefs and like we started the conversation out with like about getting started like on a nonprofit project or a business or this or that and how, you know, sometimes it's not the most constructive thing to do to, you know, go to the closest people um, within our inner circles to, hey, I have this idea and well, well, you got to do X, Y, and Z. So yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. You know, it's the same thing with, you know, when it comes to like maybe humanitarian efforts and wanting to lend a helping hand. Um, you know, we get, we get so jaded is a good word for some cases, but um, we get so trapped in these ways of thinking sometimes. And it's so difficult to break out of these, these mindsets and these bubbles. And, but it can start with just one person within the family or within the inner circle to have that empathy, which you've, you've spoken about to, start to see things in a broader perspective and appreciate the reasons why family members have come to these conclusions. And it's these conversations, like you said, that, that transform everything. And, and these, these are the conversations that, that have to be had. And I've told a a family member of mine, who's very, very political and very, very aggressive on the political side and, and just hates conservatives. He thinks the, conservatives are just the worst things that have ever happened to the country. And I, and I I've to- told him it's not constructive to just getting to these screaming matches in a very arbitrary way, using social media to conversate with these people that actually getting on the horn or the phone or, you know, face to face will transform everything in, in many ways. And it's okay to disagree and not agree with things, but I don't think it's okay to, to ruin a relationship over ideologies and more or less once it, it, it's like the same thing. I'm going on a tangent here, but it's the same thing when we were talking about, you know, Kelly, Kelly was saying like, even if you start a 
going to the homeless shelter to help out for selfish reasons, you'll find very quickly those selfish things melt away. And I think it's the very same. Once you start having a conversation with someone that is politically different to you, those differences will kind of start to melt away and those anger and feelings you have will start to kind of go away and you'll probably find more common ground than anything else. And it's okay to disagree and still have a little, and have that understanding of why people were led to their opinions. And that ultimately brings you both together. Yeah, well, Kelly is a great example of the kind of empathic connections I'm talking about because she's a foster parent and I heard her saying, about how she'd go to a real effort to help one particular kid who was having his first day at school mm-hmm. to hold up a line or something like that. And then yeah. she sent it to the parent and the parent appreciated that. And she was told by, I don't know, the, the people who organize or, or run foster parenting. Yeah. Um, they said, you know, that's really cool. And, you know, people don't normally do that. And she said to you that she recognized that basically she can't judge, you know, she can't judge how she as a parent would have reacted to something that's gone on in that parent's life that has left them to possibly um, abandon their child or something like that. So she'd been able to show the emotional and cognitive empathetic uh, connection that we can all tap into. And because we recognize that just because this, this kid has had to be taken on by a foster parent, it doesn't mean that their parents are bad people. That's Mm. essentially it. And, Mm -hmm. And who knows what we would do if we were in the same position. In fact, we know what we do if we're in the same position. We'd probably do exactly the same thing as that parent, no matter what that thing was, because that parent has had the conditioning and the genes and and the life circumstances that they've had. And if we were in the same position, we would have had their genes and their conditioning and life circumstances that they've had. So it's about understanding and Mm -hmm. and being empathetic as opposed to being judgmental. And look Mm -hmm. at what good that does for not just uh, Kelly's personal well-being, but also the child as well. You know, the, the child still feels as if it's connected strongly to its birth parent, you know, its real parent. Um, and it will, she will help bring up much more rounded children as a result of those kinds of actions. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I learned from Absolutely. Well, um, Adam, um, I think, I think, um, we're going to have to wrap this up, but before we go, how can, uh, how can people connect to you, your nonprofit, um, maybe get involved with some of the stuff we talked about, uh, the refugees, um, P- your PPP and PPE <laughs> initiative, people on the planet. I'm going to leave links in the show notes to all this, but if um, you want to tell people how they can get involved in those kinds of things. Yeah, so if you're specifically interested in all things Ambigo, so my nonprofit, then that's ambigo.co.uk, and that is spelled A-M-B-I-G-O.co.uk. So that's, what is it, Alpha, Mother, Bravo, Indigo, Golf, Oscar.co.uk. And um, if you are interested in the People on Planet Conversations side of things, then the website for that is onlineeventmoderator.com or one word, people and planet conversations was already taken. So <laughs> go with a more direct route. So people <laughs> in the search engine for online event moderators, hopefully I'll appear at the top sometime soon. And so people can hear more about that. So yeah, you can contact me through those two websites is basically what I'm saying. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I got links to all of it. So I will definitely in, um, take uh, the URLs and make sure people can connect 
to all those in the show notes. So anybody listening, I'll leave all that stuff in there and you can connect to everything Adam's doing. And uh, yeah, Adam, it's, I, I really do appreciate you coming on. Like, it's been really good. Like I've, like I said, Camille and Olivia have told me a lot about you and um, through between military, me being in the military and all of us being all over the world and stuff, it's been very difficult to um, actually sit down and, and talk and stuff like this. And I know um, last time, I think we, we actually got to spend time together was either was in Brighton or is that the a Bates family reunion a few like yeah. almost 10 years back it's, it's, it, it's I, I want to say it was 2000 it had to be 2012 so almost 10 years probably like eight eight seven years back somewhere around there but it's well, it's been I've some time Fort Worth since then but you weren't there at the time <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 crazy it's um but hopefully we can meet up again soon i'm hoping that i can make this next family reunion um but yeah but i uh, won't be there tyler that's oh yeah that's right ah. i'm gonna be at the uh at the olympics if it goes ahead working on ah. that so, yeah who knows but um you know i'm only one border away from you so yeah i'm saying that we need to make a, a road trip up from mexico uh to el paso it's a long long way because we're at the mm. exact opposite end of mexico but yeah you know world is away and I hope one point at one point to turn the mic around, as it were, and interview you because I, you know, what's just pop, popped to my mind when I'm talking so much about empathy, empathy in the military. That must be a really interesting field because uh, yeah. you know, you've got your your comrades there, as it were. So you're mixing with such a diverse group of people, and you you're all on mm. the same side. And then mm-hmm. what about empathy for the people in the land that you're going to? Often, mm-hmm. you know, wow, what a topic. Yeah. To yeah, I definitely, I definitely hope. Yeah, I definitely hope to have. Um, well, not hope. I know I, I have a few people lined up to kind of have those similar conversations, and I would definitely be open to uh, um, doing that with you sometime as well. Um, it's definitely a topic for sure, because um, you know we kind of are like a very—I don't want to say secretive, but a lot of people don't know so much about. Um, the regular army aspect they hear about like the cool special forces and all those guys and they they, they do a lot of good and they um, probably have a bigger platform and people are more interested but your regular run-of-the-mill soldier um, it's a very diverse group and it's very interesting because you're you're playing this very specific role in government and doing your thing and people come from all backgrounds it's very it's it's definitely changed my perspectives on the political standpoint and it's changed my uh, perspectives on a cultural one as well with from being a soldier and then from also being a leader in the military so it's 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 been very interesting for sure but um hey um thank you so much i i can't i i can't tell you enough this has been really great and i hope we can do this again i'd, I'd really like to yeah likewise i've uh, i've been sat here for the last couple of hours in the sun and i think i've sunburned once oh no oh no, no, there's, uh, there's no more i would like to go through that pain for than you uh, so thank you very much. Uh, all right well you take care and um i'll let you know when this airs and we'll be in contact so take care of yourself talk to you soon wicked you too and and good luck with the ongoing fatherhood as well oh I'm very pleased yeah. for you Tell, tell, uh, um, how was it going to say? Oh, hey, well, well, you and, you and Xander have a good one and hopefully, uh, I'll hear from you both soon. Cool. Nice one. All right. Later.
Well, folks, that wraps up the show. I hope you guys enjoyed. I'm going to leave links in the show notes so you can connect to Adam and his nonprofit and all the stuff that he's involved in. Man, what a guy, huh? Adam is a very, very special dude, and uh, I really had a good time talking to him. And, um, of course, I can't forget to mention the man behind all this, Mr. Sean Miller. Hey, Sean, what's up, Bubba? How are you doing? You listening to this right now? I hope you are. You better be. You better be sharing this stuff. Hey, Sean is a... uh, He's done a lot of the production as far as like the artwork and stuff you see. Sean is such a great guy, man. I love Sean. He's a he's a big uh, big uh, hunk of love. That guy. Oh, Sean. Mwah. Yeah, he's done all the artwork and stuff. Love Sean. Uh, I'll uh, I'll leave some links so you guys can connect with him if you're interested in seeing what he's doing. And last but not least, I cannot forget Miss Kelly B. Yo, Kelly, are you listening? I hope you're listening. Yeah, we talked a little bit about you, Kelly. I hope you heard more or less. Hey. Kelly's awesome. She has a nonprofit that's helping um, foster children and the homeless. And I'm going to leave links to her stuff. Grace Within Me is her nonprofit. She is an incredible force of nature. Kelly B, keep doing what you're doing. And hey, folks, that's it. That's it. That's all I got. I got nothing else. And it's been so much fun. We've made it to episode six now, I believe. And I got some more in store. We're um, we're taking off, folks. We're taking off. And um, I hope you guys uh, enjoy the ride. All right, later.